Howdy, folks. Widget Walls from NeedCoffee.com here. Listen, on behalf of myself and the two guys who actually do know what they're talking about when it comes to music, thanks for downloading The Soundboard, our humble music podcast. Just a quick note here to say thank you to everyone who's helped support Need Coffee and its podcasts down through the ages. And I know we mentioned this at the end, but I wanted to make sure and say this up front here on The Soundboard. Because Need Coffee is listener-supported and because this podcast actually does cost things to put out there, and because I'm the guy with the company that pays for everything, trust me, any help you do provide is greatly appreciated. Whether it's going to needcoffee.com slash support and throwing a few coins to us via PayPal or bookmarking needcoffee.com slash Amazon and using that to go to the Amazon front page and buy stuff you were going to buy anyway, and we get kickbacks that way, every little bit helps to keep the lights on and the microphones humming. So thank you to everyone for your support from the little music podcast that could. It warms us, even when the threat of a boy band revival makes us cold. Enjoy the show. So we're going. Yeah, we're all in fire when ready. Okay. So you remember 2010, don't you? You know, Justin Timberlake was still flirting with a music career. Vampire Weekend's Contra was the number one album on Billboard. Uh, for all we know, ABC just put Eastwick on a winter break. Here we are. Sometime later, we don't count. Uh, 17 episodes longer than Eastwick. That third album from Vampire Weekend is still floating out there in, in the ether somewhere. And, and Justin Timberlake owns MySpace. It's not as glamorous as you might think. But uh, here we are, some episodes later, and actually 27 of those we've been known as the soundboard. So welcome to episode number 30. I'm J.M. Tuffley. Coming up on this episode... The, uh, the future of music, is it actually funded by you? We'll talk about crowdfunded at records and uh, Amanda Palmer and Kickstarter and all that loveliness. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, some upcoming albums and uh, some festivals. And we'll also be looking back at the careers of Bob Walsh, Adam Yock, Robin Gibb, and Donna Summer uh, as we round up our list of the recently departed. Uh, we'll be doing that as usual. With, uh, with, with the two other people who have been on this raft for 30 episodes with me. Uh, we'll start with uh, host of Katie Agcheck, his juxtaposition uh, critic and all-around artsy guy, uh, Mr. Rob Levy. Okay, thank you for the Warholian NPR opening. I, I know, I took you by surprise on that one. Good, I'm glad. Uh, and uh, also joining us, as usual, uh, Manning, uh, Manning the Rudder. Uh, and this time, um, which is okay because he'll be taking the wheel next time. Uh, the uh, chief bottle washer of uh, this whole need coffee enterprise. Uh, in addition to uh, being an author of several things on the Kindle store, which you could go get, uh, which are very awesome. And uh, audio, audio, uh, now recorded audio magnet, uh, Mr. Uh, Widget Walls. Uh, thank you. I, I I am a recorded audio magnet, so I have to stand far away from my computer lest I actually erase it. So, so if and I'm RC, does that make Widget multimediaist? Um, yes. Okay. I, I will say this. We've been on this raft for 30 episodes, and I think I'm getting shortchanged on how much seagull is being passed around as Sorry. we try to survive. Well, that's well, okay. You, you, get, to keep, so far you get to keep the tiger. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And podcast has been broken in five minutes. Hi. That joke will uh, be funny in eight months. <laughs> oh, no. It's funny now. Uh, you and Timberlake. Um, 
So uh, I guess we should start with uh, with the <laughs> albums that are coming out pretty soon. Uh, it's the summer. It's that time where people try to uh, throw out uh, lots of really good records, uh, usually an onslaught of really good records, um, which should be spaced out more. Uh, but uh, they never listen to us and do it anyway. So uh, what, what looks good to you guys? Well, I, I'll just throw in, because I, I, I saw this, is that uh, talking about albums scrunched together that need to be spaced out, um, since the Zappa family's gotten control of the catalog again, they're re-releasing, like, what what was it, 60 albums? Yeah, Between they're releasing, like... Now, in the end of the year, like, 12 a month starting in July. 12 and you a thought, month! And you thought you were paying through the nose for the Pink Floyd reissues. No, no, well, well, but see, there's a difference between uh, if they're doing Zappa immersion, then I should just kill myself. I mean, I should uh. just kill. Now, the idea of having Frank Zappa marbles actually does appeal, but I'm just saying. I, yes, but what would be the after effect of Zappa marbles? Which... I, I don't know. I I, I think uh, I, I would find out what the Toads of the Short Forest was about. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I or, or I would I would be able to answer the question. Why does it hurt when I pee? Um, those are Zappa jokes, folks. Look it up. Uh, no, I, but I'm, I'm like, I'm fascinated. The, the, if I recall, the story doesn't actually say, well, yes, we're re-releasing them and they're all remastered and they've all got a second disc with all kinds of rarities and shit on them. So I'm, I have no idea what to expect from this. Um, but I am fascinated at the notion of it. Okay. So, uh, anything else look good to you, Yvonne, besides the Zappa stuff? Uh, well, uh, let's see. We've got uh, somebody named Mike Patton is putting out an album on July 3rd, it looks like. Uh, yes, started. yes, he is. Yeah, so uh, so anything Mike Patton puts out, I don't even know what it is, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm there. Um, also, and, oh, go ahead. And, and while I've got you on the Mike Patton subject for oh, a God. second, breaking news. Oh, sure. um, did, you see the, uh, did you see the message on Facebook? From uh from FNN this morning, no, no. From Faith and War, the uh, no. the nineteen eighty two to two thousand twelve death sign. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What? No, hang on. What? Basically, okay. So to explain this to the people who don't have Facebook or don't be bothered to go look, uh, Faith and War posted something uh, this morning, uh, either this morning or overnight, uh, that basically was a uh, basically a tombstone for the band uh, that also announced their European tour dates. And then they followed that up with a post about asking people about what they thought of the afterlife. Okay. So Farewell tour, make money, bail out. Okay. <laughs> Breaking news. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> fa- f- uh, uh, so this would be for Faith No More, their second farewell thing or what? I, ca- uh, yeah, that's, that's what everybody's wondering now. now so. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully people will be wiser than us uh, when this is actually posted, and we'll know what's going on. But we can sound befuddled now because we usually do. Yeah, we do. And, and I, I would just like to point out that uh, I don't think they ever came over here. <coughs> so they played. I actually looked this up. They played five U.S. dates since they reunited. Yeah. How many of them were anywhere near us? Well, none. But exactly. That's, Exactly. So back to new albums. Back to new albums. Uh, I just had two others. One on uh, September 11th, St. Vincent and David Byrne are doing something together. Uh, yes. Yeah, damn. yes. That'll be interesting. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, have you guys heard the first track from that? No. It I is will a send free it tomorrow. Download, though. Okay, I'll lovely. send it tonight. Lovely. 
Uh, and the 18th of September, Muse has got something, uh, which Why, is, yes. which is always interesting. So those are the main things that I saw. I'll be happy Rob, with those. Rob, what looks tasty to you? <laughs> well, believe it or not, Widge is actually taking a couple of mine. Ah. So uh, I think it's interesting that St. Vincent's going to tour with David Byrne. I think that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, I'm surprised Byrne's tour- touring with anyone or by himself at all. Um, you know, the last tour film we did was really interesting. It shed a lot of light on how he operates. Yeah. I, I, I just think you have to be a certain temperament to to do that. You know, I'm yeah. waiting for someone to get smart and make David Byrne the new lead singer of Van Halen and kill two birds with one stone. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, um, the thing is, my line is so blurred right now over what's coming out and what's out that I'm probably going to mention stuff that's out. So if go ahead. Well, first of all, I'm excited because apparently for the first time in, I think, 12 years, and Widge will know this too, there's a new Dead Can Dance record coming, um, and they're touring. So I'm kind of excited about that. I'm also kind of – I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little apprehensive about it because I just – I don't know, you know, when a band has gone that long, what you're going to get. And and the way, too, that that band has a, is made up of the components, I don't really know what to expect, but I'm kind of eager to hear it. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm very much looking forward to the St. Vincent David Byrne record because I really actually like St. Vincent, and I think the stuff she does is actually kind of cool. Um, I don't have a date for it, but there's a new record coming out from Cults, um, <clears throat> who are from Brooklyn. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think the Lemonade album is either out or coming out, but there's a band um, called Lemonade that uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a little bit, that I've heard that record, and it's uh, quite, quite nice. Uh, I'm with Widge on the Muse record. And uh, I'm, I'm looking around at, at things coming out. There's a lot of weird sort of strange um, records coming out by a lot of new artists I have not heard yet. Like there's a new, um, besides the fact that there's a new Grizzly Bear record coming, um, which I'm excited about. There is also, um, uh, I'm trying to think who else has, has, I had a whole list of stuff here and actually it all got absorbed, which is kind of sad. But I think, the most interesting new band uh, probably is Lemonade. Then there is an interesting little band uh, that I've discovered that's on uh, White Iris Records, which is kind of neat. They're called Slow Dance. They're from Brooklyn. Their debut album is coming out. I'm excited about that. Um, I think I pinged toughly on these guys because I think they're going to be big, but they're called Zulu Winter. Uh, yeah, from, you did. Yeah, they're from Oxfordshire, and they're getting a lot of comparisons to Coldplay and Radiohead in that they're from Oxford, Oxfordshire, which is where Radiohead's from. But they sort of have a um, kind of a um, I'm trying to think of the other band, um, not Coldplay, but who's the, it's not Snowpony. It's not Snowpony. Uh, Was it Snow Patrol? Snow Patrol, yeah, kind of a Snow uh, Snow Patrol kind of Coldplay sort of makeup to them. But but not as um, a little a little more melodic and not as poppy. So uh, I think they're I'm, I'm still on the fence if I like the record or not. But I think they're going to be really really big. Um, and I'm kind of interested, sort of in the way that you watch uh, car collisions on TV and hearing the new Smashing Pumpkins record um, about what what that is going to sound like and what that's going to be uh, because I think that could either be surprisingly great or i think it just could be awful so that will be interesting as well it's not like they've ever done anything like that before a really awful album no but apparently um this time they've actually sort of made an effort to sort of well corgan's made an effort to not be like this is my band so 
uh, th- this will be interesting if he's if he's learned to play well with others in a in, in the background of a band, then that'll be interesting. Um, I also think the new Beck record is going to be really interesting. It's coming out on Jack White's Third Man Records, Third Man Record, and our Third Man label, and it's really sort of a, a complete departure for Beck in that it's very very much sort of a twangish country album, and it doesn't have much of a um, sort of that that rock dance thing that he's kind of been been doing in years past. This is much more sort of rooted in Merle Haggard than it is in, you know, sort of Beastie Boy kind of sounds. So this is uh, actually a follow-up to Sea Change then? Well, a Sea Change though still sounded to me like a rock record in many ways. This has, this to me sounds like him doing, this sounds like Beck doing Oh Brother Where Art Thou? But, okay. But some of the record, some of like the first single, um, you know, I just want to hurt some, or I just want to kill somebody today. It's like really, really well structured. And then about four and a half minutes in, it just falls apart into this thing of noise. So I really don't know what to expect with him. Um, and again, this could be interesting. I'm kind of intrigued by the new Mazzy star record. Uh, see how that's going to sound. Cause all these bands that went away and come back, I'm a little dubious of, um, Mazzy so, star is going to be a dubstep record. You're kidding, right? No, I am kidding. Actually. Okay, that's good because I mean, I the, 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 I could totally see everybody doing all this stuff now because everybody is so yeah. um, deeply in, in in dire straits for for cash that I could totally see anybody making making records like that. And the new Dirty Projectors record, I think, is going to be huge as well. Um, yeah, that's going to be nice. I think that's, that's going to be nice. Um, I've just heard the single from it, but I think that's going to really, really take off as well. And I think a lot of people are. Uh, going to eat that up as well. So that's kind of what's on the off the top of my head. Oh, the new record from Liars, too, which is coming out on mute. Um, I think this could be sort of a, a kind, not, not really a seminal breakthrough album for them, but I think it's going to get them a little more on the map and probably noticed a little more. Um, so I want to throw that in, and I think I'm done. Okay. So what I've got, I will start with the thing that probably comes out uh, here in the next bit. Uh, Fiona Apple's uh, new album. And uh, I did actually look up the album title. Uh, would you read it better than I do, though? What is it? Oh, oh, crap. Um, hang on. <laughs> I, I had it the other day and uh, for, uh, for justice. And Yeah. I do also, while you're looking that up, um, I am looking forward to the St. Etienne coming out in the U.S. It's called um, Words and Music by St. Etienne. And it's, it's coming out over here eventually. But I'm looking forward to that, too. Okay, got and it. Okay, you got it? Yes. The the full album title is The Idler Wheel is Wiser Than the Driver of the Screw And Whipping Cords Will Serve You More Than Ropes Will Ever Do. Audiobook Magnet, Widget Walls, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So, Oh, shit. I raced my iPod. <laughs> uh, so, uh, besides the Fiona Apple record, and I believe this could be the the next week after, but I do believe there is a new album from uh, from uh, soundtrack of our lives coming. Yes, I did see that. Oh well. yes, uh, it's called Throw It to the Universe, and uh, actually, I think the first single is Making Rounds. So, sounds really nice. Excellent. So, so that's coming. Uh, let's see. We also have. Uh, I'm also interested in the Muse record. Uh, there's a lot of crossover for the three of us this year. Um, let's see what else we've got. I was also looking at, oh, The Very Best has a record coming out in July, uh, which is kind of interesting. I always I always find those records kind of interesting. 
Uh, and uh, Passion Pit has a record coming out in July, uh, which is which is good. Um, <laughs> and uh, let me see. Uh, sometime, and I don't have an exact release date. I believe we do get another Janelle Monet sometime uh, this uh, this summer. I think possibly if we're all very good. Yeah, well, I think she's she's touring. She's got tour dates. She's got tour dates, so that 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 kind of she's got tour dates and festival coming. So that means an album is imminent. And so, uh, if the rumors are true, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So. And uh, in addition to the Muse record in September, there's also a new album from Animal Collective, which will be interesting. Yeah. Because they keep saying it's going to be sort of a change of direction for them. Um, and I don't think I don't. They say the Honeycomb single is not that. So I don't know what that means yet. Yeah. So, but uh, that is a look at the records uh, soon to be coming out your way. Uh, if there's stuff that you're interested in uh, that uh, we didn't mention, um, you can uh, let us know in the comments or you can email us. Uh, what's the web address? What's the uh, email? Uh, soundboard at needcoffee.com. That mm. is correct. And Tuffley, can, I, I have only heard this as hearsay, but I, don't, I haven't actually heard the new Genome 1A. Is Morris Day really on it? Um, I haven't heard anything about Morris Day, so that's so more than that I would know. Be, that could be also pretty cool, but it could also be very scary. She's been guesting on everybody's records lately. There was uh, an Estelle thing I posted up the other night, yeah. uh, which is uh, it's on the, the new Estelle record. It's called uh, Do Your Thing, I think, uh, yeah. which is really, really good. Yeah. And just for the record, I am still stuck with that. Uh, what was it you said, Rob? David Byrne is the lead singer for Van Halen. Is that what? I'm sorry. I'm going to be thinking about that for days. <laughs> okay. So uh, the other bit of uh, summer, when you have a bunch of new albums come out, some of these bands feel inclined to take some of this stuff out on the road. So we have festivals. Uh, and we have more festivals to talk about. But first, uh, we'll talk about uh, the two that we were already aware of. Uh, Lollapalooza <laughs> selling out. Uh, which uh, was a bigger deal in April when they had just announced the lineup. Am I am I guessing that was correct, Rob? Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like everybody's kind of it, there's two schools of thought. There's uh, Coachella is sort of still seen as the big as the big boy on the block, but again, these are all booked sort of by the same company. Yeah. But I think the fact that Lollapalooza is in Chicago and it's centered, it yeah, makes it much more interesting. It's also much more accessible it's in a park you know downtown so it's a little easier to get to you know you can stay in a hotel you can like walk around it's a little more um accessible and it's not the hundred and five thousand degree cavern you get when you stay at coachella and there's probably yeah. not scorpions so um i think that's part of it but again i think you know lollapalooza has just been building i mean the thing i think lollapalooza does well probably better than most of the festivals is that they hype themselves pretty well. And I think that they've managed sort of to ride this crest the last two or three years uh, with these. And I think that I'm a little surprised, you know, that sold out, but they, they also, I think changed how they did the tickets because I have a friend that normally goes and he normally can get tickets all the time. And now he's going to have to buy three separate day passes instead of a, a, a regular pass. So I think, and I may be wrong. I think they have fewer they make- weekend Passes. Did they make the yeah? I was gonna say, did they make the weekend passes the whole weekend thing? Did they limit those? Yeah. Okay. You know, um, usually what I do with Lollapalooza weekend is I will go to Chicago. I have a list of the bands that I want to see, and I will check the reader or timeout first to see what bands are playing pickup shows in Chicago, like bars. Yeah. And then the other thing I'll do is I'll check Polestar because if you live like 
St. Louis being close to uh, close to Chicago and like Kansas City or Milwaukee or some of these other cities, the bands will play shows on their way to and from Lollapalooza. So I will pick up. A, I, I don't have to necessarily go because the four or five bands I want to see will be doing gigs on their way there or on their way back, or they'll be playing gigs in the city, and I still save a ton of money or spend about the same. So if you're going to Lollapalooza and you're you know, disenfranchised that you couldn't get to that, that is an option. Now, so, are, do you think they may be setting up the ticket, a different ticketing system? Because cause Coachella did the same thing this year, if you'll remember. Yeah, and I think their tickets. Uh, and I think that I think they did that for both of their festivals because they both run both for both weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which which to also is kind of dirty pool. I mean, come on, if these people made these people major business, don't screw with your audience. But at the same time, I get it from a business standpoint. Well, this brings up my other point. Uh, do you think Wall is going to go two weeks? I don't think it can. Um, Coachella is a big empty space. It's basically out there sort of in the middle of nowhere. But Chicago's in a huge public park, and they could go to two weeks. But the problem is they do so much convention business, and there's so much other things going on in that city yeah. that I'm not sure that they're going to have the hotels to accommodate that. Um and you can't really, unlike Coachella, you can't really stay on the grounds of Lollapalooza, I think, as, as well as you can with Coachella. There's a lot of people that will, like, leave and then come and go. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it could go to two weekends, but the problem that you have with Lollapalooza that Coachella does not have is that you also have the Pitchfork Festival in the same city, like, within a couple months. Yeah. So if you run two weekends – you run the danger of people saying, screw that, I'm just going to Pitchfork. With a lot of people, I mean, the big benefit of Lollapalooza selling out has been the Pitchfork Festival because more yeah. people, which usually traditionally books more interesting bands and takes more risks and does some cooler things, but a lot more people are looking at that as a viable option, even though it's a smaller festival, than Lollapalooza. So I think they're going to get a bounce off of this. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it, it, finally, the sort of... Um, you know, strip down idea of what, what what we've all experienced with different conventions that go to where they strip them down and, and it's sort of like mass marketed now. That's kind of what they're starting to do with festivals. They're sort of becoming this, um, you know, prefabricated package thing, you know, where you can even tell the bands are all going to be, you know, okay, these five bands are all playing, you know, these five major festivals. You can kind of see that sort of per- permeating now. They'll start in Coachella and end at Bonnaroo and you just see all these bands playing. Yeah. And um, and okay. I also notice I also noticed that Coachella started selling packages immediately after the festival, and, and I think Bonnaroo is about to. Yeah, uh, um, which is interesting. I find it particularly interesting because a lot of the big reason that you see some of the bigger, bigger, bigger bands, particularly the British bands, at uh, some of the other festivals that aren't Coachella, has to do with the fact that festival season in the UK is pretty much non-existent this year due to the Olympics. Yeah. And it seems to me that the other, and I don't know if you you get this idea too, that maybe the other festivals are kind of getting a little more aggressive about their ticket sales next year when those festivals come back. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it, though, too, is that if you've looked really carefully, there's more music festivals popping up in very strange, like Russia has, ha- has added one or two more festivals. Yeah. They're, they're, they've ramped up festivals in, in like Paris and Prague and Berlin. Uh, other European cities are starting to do bigger step up and do bigger festivals. And I think they're planning it was like a one-year deal and seeing what go, goes on. Uh, yeah. so it'll be kind of, because we're still getting mostly American bands on a lot of these, a lot of these festival dates. Uh, like Bonnaroo, I think had fish and 
the Chili Peppers, even though they did have Radiohead. Yeah. Uh, those kind of bands are all sort of making the rounds. So it's it's you know it's become a business now where a band can just like not do small venues. They can just do five big festivals a year and they're and they're done. You know, uh, and they don't have to play a ninety minute set. It's like well, unless they're headliner. You know, but they can do an hour between forty. You know, between an hour to an hour and twenty minutes at five festivals, and then only do you know other big cities like four or five big cities. You know, to pick up pieces. Like if they yeah. do Coachella, they can do a date in L.A. If they do Chicago, they can do a date in Chicago, or they can pick up one or two dates you know around that. And if they're going to you know New York, if they're doing something like All Tomorrow's Parties in New York, then they do a couple nights in New York. So there's a lot of um, Interesting things in play. Some of the bands are really, the mediums, the mid tier bands are, are the ones that are the smartest about it because they realize they're going to be on the road anyway. So let's maximize our audience potential by playing, you know, shows around those dates, like with travel, you know, traveling to and from. And a lot of the bigger bands are just using it as an excuse to tour less. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, crossroads for, for bands at festivals. And so, uh, we've got, uh, coming out of the summer festivals, uh, Austin City Limits just announced. Uh, and uh, that's going to be October 12th through 14th uh, in Austin, obviously. Yeah. Um, the uh, headliners are going to be uh, Chili Peppers, uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, uh, Black Keys, Jack White, Florence and the Machine, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, uh, Bass Nectar, The Roots, I think Gautier, I think, is on there, M83, a bunch of bands. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and uh, the other thing I was going to point out is that there is actually some sort of dance techno dubstep thing that's happening in our backyard wedge yes uh, i saw that uh basically what is it uh end of september yeah it's it's three weeks i think it's two or three weeks after dragon con and it's actually the week after music midtown is wow. it is it in atlanta or is it the in miami i think it's no, just atlanta. outside it's atlanta okay. dude okay. uh so there's and, a big electronic music festival they do every year in miami so i wasn't yeah sure. i think that's in the spring though well, basically, uh, you've got uh, Bass Nectar, you've got Skrillex, Pretty Lights, and uh, Big Gigantic is here as well, Rob. Um, so, <laughs> very, very interesting lineup, but here's the thing about that. Because at first, I was like, oh, awesome. And then I thought, wait a minute. Because I have gone uh, and looked at live videos <laughs> of concerts. And... I don't, and, and you guys need to correct me on this. Techno, techno outfits are not the most interesting things live. No, I, basically guys behind uh, keyboards and laptops dancing. Okay. Tell, this is where Rob, you're going. Rob, help me, please. <laughs> All right, here's the this thing. This is the anti-rock of ages, by the way, Ridge. No, just so you know. no I mean, it, it, it's very clever because it started for me watching this um, when I, I, I went to see Girl Talk just to see what this was about. And... It's interesting because, um, you know, you'll see a band like Kraftwerk do, you know, five nights at MoMA with synthesizers, but they still do some presence of a live show. And then you, you, you'll get like, you know, a Depeche Mode or Erasure or some of these other synth-based bands will still do a traditional, normal type of show, right? When you go see, for example, Big Gigantic or Girl Talk, Girl Talk, basically, he lines everything up um, in front of him. He's got a screen behind him that plays visuals, and he's got basically a laptop. And every couple songs, he'll press the laptop. But the rest of the time, he's dancing and yelling on yelling on a mic, you know, get it going or whatever. And it's, you know, God help them if the if the tape breaks. You know, I want to be there when the, when the shit crashes. 
Um, now, to be fair, I have seen him crowd dive with the laptop in hand. Yeah, but the key is the laptop isn't where all the music's stored. You know, the, the, it's main like the, the laptop is kind of like what augments everything. I'm sure they have. I, I'm 90 percent sure that that is that there's something someplace else that that's running off of. And the laptop, the main laptop that is on the stage is not necessarily the one that's running the whole show. So he could stage dive with a laptop and still be OK. He's running off the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, they've got I think they've got some stuff on the side or I could be completely oh, wrong. I, this, you know. I am sure I, I am sure that if they had some kind of catastrophic failure, these larger bands could recover, yeah. you know, quickly, because that's that's one of the things that <laughs> it used I to just be. I just admire the stage, the stage diving with the laptop. I just that's Spe- that's juggling for me. Speaking as a former <laughs> IT professional, that fills me with terror. But um, yes. what, what I what what I and it's a MacBook that, Pro. What the hell? What what I would say is that it used to be in the good old days you broke a string and had to stop. Now oh our RAID server went down. Oh shit! But yeah. But I mean, I know. But, but I mean, Rob, that's my thing. It's like that's like even something like, um, even something like sleigh bells, where it's like the two of them. It's like okay, you've got a guitar, she's singing, and well, they have other band people to fill it out on tape. <laughs> I mean, all the ones well, I've seen. The show, on this tour, they had they had like extra extra musicians. Okay, well, yeah, I, when, I saw I saw they I, added, believe when, uh, I believe when they played SNL, they had extra musicians they were going to have on tour. Okay, well, that, yeah. that's good because I mean they've uh, learned. <laughs> well, well, but but it's it's like it, to me that's not exciting. It's like it's I like know. seriously get enough people to do it live, but but folks like <laughs> you know, I mean even Big Gigantic. I mean it's it's really awesome. In that the guy's playing a saxophone with all this insanity going on, but at the end of the day, you're a guy with a saxophone. Now here's yeah here's the thing: these shows will are top heavy on lights and visuals, right? But mostly they're like a, you know it's like the the DJ is taking place of the audience working things. And again, I told everyone I believe within the first thirty things of this, when you stop making the traditional MC and MC and putting any guy with a laptop with a microphone, you're killing music, sort of. In a way, um, because, you know, even if you see I, I've seen DJ bands where they have a DJ and the DJ is using like computer, you know, DJ scratch stuff. It is at least exciting because they at least have to go through the motions of mimicking what they would do with a DJ. You know, they're using a computer, you know, they've got the, the pads. Right. So they're at least using hands and eye coordination and moving this. A lot of the times they have like, you know, when, I, when someone tells me it's not like. It kind of started with Crystal Method, but when you tell me you're going to see an electronic band and I get there and it's pretty much a guy with a computer and they're jumping around and they've got lights, I don't necessarily consider that in my mind, in my old man mind, I don't consider that seeing a live show. I think of that as I'm seeing a DJ set with a lot of stuff, fancy stuff on it. Yep. That's pretty much it. And that's my mindset, you know, and I think that. You know, I've, I've seen Mimosa, who puts on a great show uh, and works a crowd. I've seen, you know, Pretty Lights, and I've seen a lot of these guys that do it, and they really make an effort to work a crowd. So to that end of it, they are working, you know, because they are still trying yeah. to make the crowd get into their, their music. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody like Roger Waters has to go on the road, you know, for 40 years busting his ass to sell records, and some punk plugs, plugs in the computer and tells people to jump up and down and say, hell yeah. To me, it kind of smacks in the face to a lot of things that went before it. And I know it's a technology thing, 
but it's just kind of weird. Well, um, and I'm fi- and I'm fine with that existing. I, I don't find it a smack in the face. I just it's just not. For well, me. I mean, to the concept of like a live presentation. Oh well, I mean, so, even yeah. even like for example, I I went and looked up uh, a live performance chase instead of Brixton briefcase. This is the the track that CeeLo Green is yeah. on, and they've got a like a neon light thing of CeeLo's head singing it, and yeah. I'm like. That still doesn't impress me. It's like, I don't get someone just you don't have to have CeeLo there, obviously, but get someone on a mic to sing that. Uh, so really, so, so really what you so really what you're saying there, Widge, is why would you be paying 80, uh, 80 upwards of $80 plus to go see two guys standing behind a DJ booth? Exactly. Uh, if you'd like to do that, please give me your money. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> if that's for you, then then rock on with your bad self, because I understand I can see where if I were, you know, 50 years younger, I would, uh, you know, this would be the kind of thing that it because it's just like going to a big party, you know. So and I, that's kind of what they're what they're going for. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I can see the appeal of that. I just it doesn't work for me because, like you said, Rob, I, I'm there to see music. Um, and, and for the most part, I can hear music just fine. That is until I finally blow my ears out. Um, but I, I right now I can hear it just fine. So it's to me it's almost like well, if you're gonna play what's on the album and it's exactly like what's <laughs> on the album, I'll just stay home and listen to the album. Yeah, or drag it out, you know. Um, and there's something nice about the glory of improvisation, which I don't think there is in a lot of this stuff, you know. Um, well, because it's precise to begin with. Yeah, I have because to cutting say and that... pasting is a precise art. I have to say, though, that Mimosa may have the single greatest light show I've seen by a rock and roll type of person in a long time. He basically had like it looked like the video game Star Castle. I mean, it was it was mighty impressive, you know, and well, the Daft the, Punk thing was kind of impressive, too, I thought, when they toured. But, you know, but at least, that, you know, I consider Daft Punk different than this. I know it's yeah. I, like and I've seen the Chemical Brothers live. Right. I've seen Moby live. I've seen the Prodigy live. They both had at least some traditional elements of a rock and roll show. The Chemical Brothers pretty much had, yeah, they were out there, but they had like DJs and equipment and they were moving around on stage, but they were at least sort of, yeah, I, I'm trying to find a way to describe I mean, It's kind of like the primitive version of where we are with this, you know? Yeah. But the Chemical Brothers, when they were live, put on a pretty decent show. I mean, you'd see people pick up guitars or they'd bring in a singer to sing a song while they were playing. Um, so I believe it. I believe they have a lot. The their Think movie is actually out on DVD yeah. now, which yeah, is like an and, example of that. And and Daft Punk sort of made an effort to like, okay, look, we're going to do this. You know what? You know what we we are. So let's give you something visual where it's like there. They at least you know, okay, we got dudes dressed up like robots, or we have dancers, or we've got, you know, there's other elements you can bring into it. Even if you're going to play like a backing tape or whatever, you could still play something over it. So not all of it's taped. And then you can also have. You can have dancers come in. You can have, you know, a guitarist come in or whatever. There's different things you can do with it to play with it and make it work. And, you know, but that's what makes the sort of dubstep and that type of music different than traditional dance music, I, I think. Um, it's it's just weird. But, I mean... So in like a festival setting, do you think maybe these guys shouldn't have their own festival? Maybe they should just be fillers to other bands? Well, I mean, I think, I think, well, you know, like anything else, when you have lots of different artists that fill in a certain genre, it's great. You know, you can plug in basically 50 TV screens and the same band can use them all night. I mean, no, I think it's fine for them to have their own type of thing, uh, festival. I think actually it's probably a really good idea because I think 
as much as I love a lot of that type of music, I think it's really in many ways underexposed. Um, so going to see it is great, but I just think that you need to know ahead of time going in what you're going to see. You know, if you're going to go see Big Gigantic and Pretty Lights and you're going to go see um, Skrillex. Now, Skrillex probably does, does more of a theatrical show than, than the rest of those guys. But And I imagine AIM-83 is a bit more of a band than – AIM-83 is a full band, um, yeah. and they actually have a saxophone as well. Yeah, they um, – yeah, and they 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 started off though doing a band, so it's a little yeah. different. But I think with with a lot of these guys, um, I think if you know going in what you're getting, it's fine. And I think a lot of people that are fans of the genre know going in, okay, this is going to be a party. This is going to be, you know, a bunch of people just jumping up and down and going insane. And I think the release of uh, you know listening to electronic music with a room full of other like-minded people is a charge for them. You know, yeah. I've never seen a crowd go nuts like I've seen a crowd go nuts at a at a, at a girl at a girl talk show. Um, my problem with going to a girl girl talk show is that I was trying to find figure out where all the samples were and I was distracted. <laughs> like I, I'm like, okay, this is 180 beats per minute. This is 140. How did you get the backing beat to do this? You know, in many ways, having all the software that automatically loops all your songs together, it's cheating. The Paul's boutique drinking game is never as fun live. You know. Um, and Girl Talk's playing a festival here, and I think it'll be interesting to see how this dichotomy works because they're playing before the Flaming Lips. I mean, I, like the the Lou Fest here has like the Flaming Lips and Phantogram and Dinosaur Junior and yeah, Girl I, Talk and a couple other bands. You've kind of got this weird, and I, I saw the lineup for that. You've kind of got this weird sort of okay, so you've got a lot of dubstep, you've got a couple of DJs, a lot, a couple of jammy bands, and like one hardcore band. Is that? Am I guessing that's right? Kind of. I mean, the afternoons. <laughs> The afternoon. Well, Bonnaroo's kind of gone that way too, though. I mean, yeah. um, well, Bonnaroo, Bonnaroo had to do something to shed that jam band image because you know after you couldn't have Fish headline every year anymore, you know that yeah. sort of you um, sort of had to get somebody else. I don't understand why I used to get them all in the field and gas them, but that's just me. Um, wow. Sorry. <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> suddenly, suddenly uh, genocide. It's like what? <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's genocide. The musical sponsored oh, by God. the Geek Squad. My my hatred for jam bands is very well known. So anyway, um, well, Rob, but, here's here's a question for you. So yeah. it, knowing that this is so new, and knowing that these people basically, I mean, uh, you know, I know Skrillex was in a band before, and they they have a musical background, but for the most part, they are in essence, uh, you know, recording this <laughs> stuff at home in their bedroom slash studio they're bootstrapping themselves right is i mean it, it's very much similar to punk and it's diy sort of yeah. origins well but my question is so when you've got somebody who you know becomes <laughs> huge like skrillex who starts adding things is it just that they're so new and and don't really have <coughs> a, a base of like you know an operating budget yet <laughs> that they that they go we're not comfortable with, you know, having to pay for somebody to come along on tour just to every three songs, get on a mic and sing. I mean, is that could that be part of it? Well, I mean, obviously, Skrillex is not going to get the doors to play with them live. <laughs> That's... I mean, it, you know, let's go. Let's get that nailed down right off the bat. But uh, there are holograms, Rob. Let me, let me just let me just let me just be clear here. I'm not bitching because I don't I don't want to go see Skrillex because I'm going to bitch that Jim Morrison is not there to perform his sample. Well, no, you get the rest of the three on it though. No, no, we'll, I, we'll, I, we'll I gladly just, play because they all played on the record. I just uh, I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> but Skrillex, when he recorded, recorded I think with Manzarek and the the remaining Doors. He actually recorded with them, I think. 
Um, and he's a little different because he used to be in a band and he sort of gets it, you right. know. But I think that I think that right now, presentation-wise, this is evolving. You know, it takes the elements of like a rave and a party and combines them with sort of the communal concert experience of seeing a hip hop band. I think that's kind of what they're going for. And I think we'll get there. You know, I think, yes, I think they're just as justified in playing festivals with other bands, as many other bands as possible. And in many ways, they really sort of work where if you're like, okay, I've got to figure out how to get from the Flaming Lips to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or I've got to get from, you know, this band to this band. Well, if you put a good DJ in between, or if you put one of these acts, they can fit in a lot of different places, you know? Um, what's when these guys have to start doing second, third, and fourth records is when this is going to get interesting. You know, I think, and again, there's a difference, I think, between Pretty Lights, Gigantic, and and Riskio than people like Nero and um, Burial and some of the Fortet stuff. I think there's musically a difference with that um, in style and, and, and presentation. But I think that you know, yeah, they can have a festival. I think it's a cool idea to do it because every other type of festival of, of a type of different music has been sort of ger- generically thrown together. And I think if you can do that, why not? You know, if you're trying to create a scene and a movement, you almost have to do this. So it'll be really interesting. Um, the loading probably doesn't take long, <laughs> you know, but nice. yeah, so. Yeah, so you can fit your instruments in the new Ford Escort. Um, but I think in general, festivals are trying to sort of get as many different artists across as many areas and push as many buttons as possible. I think the big ones like Coachella and Lollapalooza can pretty much do what they want. And the medium-sized ones like Lufest here and some of these other smaller ones try to give a lot of little different things so that they can cross-represent lots of different people, you know? And a lot of it is what artists are around nearby that'll come in, you know? They may be, they may be, you know, take the take the concept of a regular convention and, and apply it to music. Okay, I know I've got the Flaming Lips on one day, and I know I've got Dinosaur Jr. in the other. I'll build there. And then, oh, wait, I just got a call from she and him, and they want to play. Or, oh, I just got a call from... Uh, the Jungle Brothers, and they want to play. Well, I can't say no. Let's do it. You know. Well, and actually, then... actually, you didn't get a call from she and him. You just got it from uh, from her Siri. Sure, but um... <laughs> it was scheduling for her. <laughs> but um, yeah, that type of thing, you know. And I, I think that there's a really concerted effort to make an American festival movement, and I'm not. It's never going to rival what it is in in Britain. And you always ask the bands and they're like, well, the festivals in America aren't like the ones in Britain because it's very clean and pretty and it's all about making money. Where in England, it's all about, you know, the other bands will watch the other bands. It's very much in big, giant open fields and it's very much more, uh, I think, music focused. Whereas here, we throw in all kinds of other stuff besides music to sort of stimulate. I think sometimes we oversaturate people when we go to these things, you know, Um well, we sort such sticklers for value for money. We, they don't think they will get off our couches for anything less than like iced tea and a circus. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, like when I went to the Womad Festival, I loved the fact that it was like mostly the main the main thing that was featured at the Womad Festival was music. And then they yeah. had a couple different booths about, you know, some of the different artists playing had booths where they sort of, you could talk to them about like, oh, this is, these are some other artists from Senegal or something, you know. Well, yeah, but to be fair, but to be fair, Womat hasn't come back here because it wasn't that successful here. 
I know, but that's because we don't get it and we should, you know? Um, And it's also... That kind of goes to my point of, okay, it's not that we just want bands. We want bands and and experience. I necessarily don't think I'm the right person to ask about a festival because what would make me get off of my couch to go to a festival is far different than what would make the average person. I, average I think we've music, established what it'll take to get us off the couch to yeah, a festival. The, the average, the average no person one else. going to a festival is, is much more younger and cooler. But like me, I just, you know, I've done the standing outside in 90 degree in fields to see bands and you know, there's not much more you can do. I mean, I've seen Nine Inch Nails, Jane Addic- Jane's Addiction, and Ministry on the same bill. You can't really do much more to me than that, you know, at this point. Oh, with Nick Cave. You can't really okay. do much more, you know. Um, and plus, sort of, if, you, if you're really young, you know, this is something you do free-spirited to jump in and, and get into music. But if you play the game enough, then you know all the little tricks like, oh yeah, I could go to this festival and shell out 190 bucks for one ticket, see a band play for 45 minutes, be standing and have to deal with a ton of assholes, or I could just go from theater to theater, you know, and if I want to take a break, you know, there's ways yeah. to do that, which is why something like Pitchfork is so nice because it's sort of, uh, it's moderately sized, it's manageable, and it's not overkill, you know. I think when you start having more than like 10 bands in a day, your brain falls. Well, your brain just shuts know- down. Here's the thing. I appreciate and, – and towns seem to be going a little festival crazy here, or at least I, I think so. Um, and I think part of that this year in particular has to do with the fact that you don't have the British festivals and more bands are available. And it's also a sign of like scene validation sort of. Yeah. To, to, we, have a, we have a festival. You know? Yeah. Every, every, every city wants to have one because they see it as what they do. You know? but, like, I, oh. but you know, I kind of like the idea of what CMJ used to be, which is you yes. went to different clubs and every different club had a different flavor and every yeah. different club had different type of bands that played on those nights. You know what I mean? Yeah. It didn't feel like, okay, well, here's everything crammed together yeah. and you all have to sit there, but we're going to make you sit through bare naked ladies to get to the band you really want. Yes. You know what I mean? Like I had to sit through Will and the Bushman to see Blur and Slow Dive. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> at, an SBK, at an SBK festival. So I totally get it, you know. But and I kind of like the idea of, at least with the CMJ model, or, or even like what South by Southwest used to be, like going from club to club and like seeing different bands and getting different flavors yeah. by actually changing locations. Although now it's trickier too because you have to sort of time. Like I'm going back to CMJ this year for the first time in 12 years. And uh, it's going to be weird because I, I, I'm not sure I'm off the game of getting from club to club to club. I used to be able – I saw George Clinton, I saw Zendaya Neubauten and Johnny Cash in one night. I don't think I could do that anymore. You know, um, Those days are gone. I'm not sure that the, the, they set it up where you can do that anymore. And, well, there aren't enough clubs. I mean, well, like, they, I think... they find a lot for CMJ. And, and the label yeah. showcases I thought were always interesting because I saw Muse – when their first album came in uh, a bar in New York with 120 people. You know? I mean, that's the kind of thing you like going to like the, those things yeah, for. Yeah, it was like it's news like, and theater and... Um, it's like finding that... Other people. I mean, it was weird. two or three bands that like four people have seen before and you're like one of the early people who are getting in on something. Yeah. Um, and I could tell then when I saw Muse, like this band is going to be too... Their sound is too loud for small venues. They need to be in big places. This is a band that you have to hear in a big room. But, you know, I think, I, I think the old ideas of like an old CMJ 
is is kind of, it, it, I, that's what I liked. Or the oh, even going older, the old new music seminars in New York, was yeah. great Because you know, and then during the day, you get actually constructive things on 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 what to do, which I know they don't do at these music festivals, and you can't add that element because it'll drive everyone nuts. But and even kind of like a film festival type atmosphere, I always I always yeah. kind of like that. Yeah, but again, I think sometimes and kind of make it a city thing instead but, of like yeah, we're going to do it in a park. Yeah, if you're going to do a music festival, sort of. I think a medium-sized city or a market that's not in the top five markets is, is almost the way to go because they can spread it out to different clubs. You can decide, okay, I'll go to – for you guys, you say, I, I'll go to East Atlanta, but I don't really want to go down to Centennial Park and sit with thousands of people. Or I want to go here and not there. And, and being able to – well, I'm still seeing the festival. I'm just seeing it in only in one chunk of town. I, I think there's letting people pick and choose that is, is to me much more appealing than like just being – Outside, because to me, there's nothing worse than like I've got to sit through this band for another forty minutes to see a band I like, and I can't move because I don't want to lose my spot. I mean, little shit like that just drives me nuts. Yeah, to get to Mike Patton, you've got to watch Kings of Leon. You know, um, but again, if you're just a we just general, now awake. But if you're just a general, you know, young kid who's got the whole day ahead of you, knock yourself out. You know, I mean, people forget they had the music festivals in the '60s, and it was people probably complained about the same thing. You know. People went to the Montreux Jazz Festival to see Dave Brubeck, but they had to sit through like, you know, 10 other people, you know, um, one of which was Miles Davis. Somebody had to sit through Miles Davis going, what the hell is this, in order to see Dave Brubeck. So, I mean. I don't understand that. that, that now well, this is before. You're confusing me more than David he, Byrne and Van Halen now. Well, this is before he broke. You know, uh, a lot of these guys played festivals like that before they broke. And a lot of these jazz guys were doing jazz festivals and people didn't get them because they were like so concerned on seeing the headliner. They just were completely oblivious to the guys playing before, but now that's all sort of changed. So, um, and, and again, you know, you kind of, when you go to a festival, you can kind of control what you want to do. If you just want to go one day, go one day, pick a day when there's like 10 bands you want to see and do that. But I could not imagine doing it for three. I, I just can't, you know, it's sensory overload for me. Um, even the festival here, which is, you know, doing reasonably well and they're, and they're interesting. I'll probably pick a day. I'll probably figure out what bands I do want to see. I was, I've seen Dinosaur Junior. They're loud. Um, last year I cheated because it's, it's near the art museum here in, in, in Forest Park. And there's a really great restaurant in Forest Park that like overlooks the art museum. And I will just go there at like 11 in the morning, order brunch, sit out on the patio, listen to the three bands I want to see, leave and then come back that night at six go hear the other band I want to hear and I'll just get, go home done, you know, um, because really you can't really see a band at a festival too. That's the other thing is like, I don't like being that far away where, you know, I'm paying 95 bucks and some tall guy may or may not stand in front of me, you know, and that kind of, that element kind of isn't my thing either. So, so basically what we've decided here, and if I may draw a conclusion, if you're young and significantly tall, Feel free to enjoy the wealth of the no, American festival that we have. I feel so old and short. I'm just <laughs> an old, grumpy, just disenfranchised bastard is what it is. So, <laughs> uh, But I totally get why they're running them. Um, I have You have to say, though, that with Coachella and with Lollapalooza, they run them very, very successfully, efficiently, and for the most part, they make them as fan-friendly as possible. I mean, they're not just slapping bands on these bills and still, I mean, they could very easily at this point co-op out. Okay, it's eighty-five bucks for a pass. Here's our two headlining bands, and the rest are all just crap. They make an effort every year, though, to make sure the people that spend that money 
get what they want. Um, so I think that's an important part. I mean, I might bitch about the whole festival experience, but they really are trying to give somebody the value for what they're spending. So, so the promoters like are getting choosier about which bands. I think so. Well, I think I think it's a combination of the of the bands, you know, that want to play them. I think it's the labels that want to put as many of their bands on a on a on a festival gig as possible. And you'll see like whole mini tours, like oh, like one year the Kaiser Chiefs were out with like two other bands, and instantly those three bands are all playing like all the festival that the Kaiser Chiefs would play because they were all on the same label. Yeah. So you get these like sort of mini label showcases, but at least. You know, like you looked at the Coachella lineup when we talked about it on the radio, and you were just piling on. You're like, oh my God, you know? And that was kind of cool. You know, if I chose to go to Coachella, I probably would have felt like I got my money's worth because it was pretty relentless in terms of wanting to see artists. So uh, to that end of it, it's kind of cool. You know, but then you get all kinds of festivals. Like there's, there's that Rib America Festival that tours. There's, you know, every city has a Fourth of July festival where they have three or four people to play around the 4th of July. There's all kinds of like festivals that aren't big deals that are just as musically interesting. You know, the, one of the best festivals we ever had here was on the 4th of July weekend when they, they had in order, you know, Curtis Mayfield, Al Green, uh, Curtis Mayfield, Isaac Hayes and Al Green, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I was like, that was to me far more cooler than going to see, you know, a Lollapalooza that year or something, you know? Um, so they're, my my basic mindset on festivals is figure out what you want as a person going to the festival and then pick a festival that works for you. And if you don't want to spend the money, go to a whole festival, pick a day, you know, or find, you know, figure out, you know, I say if there's more than five bands playing in one day that you want to see, then do it, you know, but don't take, and, and also take some risk because you will find a really great band at a festival playing you have not heard of that really delights you. And this this is the other key thing too, is that these things are becoming launching points for bands that labels and industry people want to make make money later. Those bands that are playing earlier, two or three years ago, Coachella are now moving up into mid card and then upper card near the end in a couple of years. So it's very much about giving exposure to young talent, and I think that's part of it. You know, people like St. Vincent and Regina Spector used festivals to sort of really get their name out there. The Dresden Dolls were the same way. They played at some yeah. festivals too. So it is a it is an opportunity for a band to get out there and get itself seen and built and, and move on. So, so there you go. Uh, so if you're going again, enjoy uh, the the summer shows, and uh, it helps if you're taller. Well, we have lost a few people since uh, we were with you last, and uh, I suppose we'll start with uh, Bob Welsh. Uh, he is probably most well known for his uh, four-year stint as the guitarist in uh, Fleetwood Mac, or as some people call him, yeah, the guy before Lindsay and Stevie, that guy. Um, he was uh, with the band through, I believe, three or four records, and would you'll have to correct me on this. Was it three or four Fleetwood Mac records? Uh, wait, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't prepared to uh, to to be the librarian. Hang on, I'll look up. Okay. I, I believe I believe it was three or four because he left. Uh, he Bob Walsh was one of the guitarists that came in after uh, after Peter Green left, I believe. So he was the in between guy. But uh, the important thing I think about Bob Walsh is, uh, particularly with his time with Fleetwood Mac, is that it did sort of was a change of sound from the bluesy sound that uh, that uh, the original incarnation of Mac had had and the California one, kind of the easier rock. Uh, sound that that Fleetwood Mac would sell millions of records doing. 
Uh, you got five, actually. Five? Okay. So he was, close. He, he was on, uh, no, you're close. He was on future games through Heroes Are Hard to Find. So 71 through 74 releases. Okay. Um, and I believe he had something to do with suggesting, actually, uh, at least Lindsey Buckingham to uh, be his replacement. So uh, that's got to count for something. Did anybody else want to add anything about Bob? No, I think you got it tied up. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you did. Well done. Okay. Because sadly, yeah. as, as amazing as it sounds, my appreciation for and knowledge of Fleetwood Mac is very minimal. Ah. Uh, and 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 mine basically starts with uh, with seventy five. So I mean, yeah, Bob Welch that's is kind of yeah. yeah, yeah. Bob Welch, like I said, is probably more well known for being the guy before Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, basically. All right, so moving on uh, to a possibly a bigger <laughs> name, uh, Adam Yock, who is also well known as uh, MCA from the BC Place past in April. And uh, Rob, you've got the sigh, you've got the sigh, so so I'll throw to you for for a little context. I am far too young to be seeing people from my generation going, and. There's some people when they die, you're like, okay, they had a full rich life, you know, like Eddie James. You're like, wow, what a legacy, great, like, you know, stuff like that. And you feel, but this, I think we can all universally agree on was a kick in the nuts. Um, yeah, that hurt. Yeah. Because the, the Beastie, I mean, I, I, the thing about the Beastie Boys that's interesting in that I was a sophomore in high school when the Beastie Boys broke and it was a huge freaking deal. I mean, it literally, in the same way that the 90s got like completely jolted by Nirvana, the Beastie Boys kind of did that in the 80s. They sort of took all this and just sort of crumpled it all up, and the game was changed, right? But the Beastie Boys, besides being musically iconic and musically interesting, were also sort of this like culturally important band because like all of a sudden it was cool to be the white nerdy kid. You know, they t- pretty much brought well one they. More than anybody else, they took rap to, to white kids and to the suburbs. White will, rap probably would not have gotten out there had it not been for the Beastie Boys. Like Eminem, all those people, you know, you got to well, tip more, your hat. Well, more importantly, they put Def Jam on the map. Yes. To a large um, extent for a national audience. Well, I was I was getting to that. But I mean, I, and, and the, the, I mean when Fight for Your Right, the party broke. It was absolutely, it was, from what it was everywhere on MTV, even the VJs on MTV were like, yeah. we don't know what the hell this is, but yeah. it's pretty great. And it, it was, it was pretty much a game changer. So you have this, and then the thing about the Beastie Boys is from there, even until the last record, they're singles. It's almost like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones in that you, you take off their singles and you're like, oh yeah, that's great. Oh yeah, that one. Oh yeah, that. And you know, like going back and listening to the catalog, you're like, how many great? I mean, regardless of albums, because of, we'll get to that in a minute. But just the singles alone were were like epic and great. And then what they did to the art of the music video, between bridging the video from, you know, a piece of like promotional thing, because Fight for Your Right is pretty much, it starts there. They they made the video itself an interesting aspect of music. You know, they used it as a really good tool to tell stories. Things like Sabotage, for example. They played with the video to make it something different than just guys talking on the record, you know, lip-syncing on the record. Their records alone, I mean, you get to uh, Hello Nasty and you get to Paul's Boutique in particular, and they're 
they are Paul's boutique is a, is probably the ninety the closest thing the nineties got to Sgt. Pepper's in terms of a concept and a record going all the way through. Um, and the other interesting thing about the, the Beastie Boys, and I promise I'll shut up, is that they sort of did the whole stream of consciousness thing with how they handled awareness about Tibet and a lot of the political issues they chose to tackle. They did it in a way, and I'm not really sure how they did it, but they did it with such finesse that you didn't feel like they were co-opting a movement and you didn't feel like they were doing this to get their name out there. You know, the difference between, you know, you two fighting for rights in South Africa and the difference between the VC boys fighting for rights with, for people in Tibet, when you look at them, you think, oh, those are all great. But just the complete believability factor and the way that their cases were presented is really fascinating how the VC boys sort of did that. And trying to span all of that sort of in a 47, what, 47 was he? Or 44. Yeah, 47. In 47 years. And there was three of them, and each one sort of broke down into, into distinct areas. But but Adam Young was pretty much, I think, the social voice of the Beastie Boys. And I think that while none of them was more of the creative voice, they each sort of brought a different element to it. He at least brought, from from my understanding, the elements of commentary, making a statement, getting our band name out there and branding to that band, I think he put that out there and that is huge. And it's really just sad because it's like, not only are we, I mean, in essence, we're the Beastie Boys have been ripped right out of our fucking guts, you know? And I didn't always love all their records, but man, you could always hear Beastie Boys song and it made your day a little better, you know? Or if you were with a group of people that had completely different musical tastes, you could, the Beastie Boys were your go-to. You know, and there's not a lot of those bands. And uh, I think that probably the best way to sort of, I saw uh, a record store marquee that uh, that said, you know, rest in peace, uh, Adam, Adam Yauch, um, first class, not coach. And I just like, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's a quote from a song, but it's still pretty cool in, in just describing that. And, you know, he dated movie stars and he, trashed hotel rooms and did all the stuff that rock and roll people do, but he somehow managed to get through it with any of like the people, other people of his time, like Axl Rose or Nikki Six or even some of the other hip hop guys, he managed to come through it in pretty decent shape with both of his feet on the ground. And it's pretty remarkable. So, you you know, it is kind of a weird thing. If you recall that these are the same guys that uh, opened for Madonna on the uh, Like a Virgin tour with an inflatable penis. Yeah. Now, I saw – the first time I saw the Beastie Boys, they played with Murphy's Law at the old Keel Opera House. Was this they when got, they were still a punk band? Uh, this is right after the License to Ill came out. Okay. So they were doing half punk stuff, half License, license to Ill. But they were taking girls from the audience and putting them in cages, right? Yeah. And, they, did that on, they did that on the tour too when they yeah, – the, the big and tour. And it was like – it was like they were getting ready to run. Be run. There were a lot of towns in the early days that they had to pretty much. It was like old school rock and roll. We're like, okay, the show's over. Get in the back of the bus and get the hell out of town. Um, which I also think is kind of a cool sort of thing for the band is that they sort of had this. You know, if you would have heard the Beastie Boys in 1986 or 1987 and thought that that band was going to be culturally and socially relevant 20 years later, you never would have figured that out. You know, much less, much less asking for freedom for Tibet. I mean, they were they were the quintessential party band of of their era, but 
somewhere along the line they evolved into like this video uh video band they they evolved into a band with a very yeah. very strong social message and a band that was very much uh, not afraid you know to name names and call people out and pick fights and do a lot of cool things i mean it's 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 kind of an interesting band history and you can't really put a label on the beastie boys in many ways because of because of him and it's just when you see someone that creative that young and with so much to offer not just necessarily musically uh because i think with him you have to step away from the music uh and just look at look at the palette overall it's just really sad i mean it's just yeah you know it's just sort of like you read on the email that you know this guy from the Beastie Boys died, and you're like, what? And for me in particular, being older, and I was, you know, I I I, I, sort of, I think I mentioned this with Rocks on 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 one of the other podcasts is that it sort of felt like a big chunk of like our youth was gone, you know, and it's yeah. it just kind of like really, you know, because the, the the Beastie Boys for me span middle high school to college, and then adulthood, you're like, God, those guys are still making great records, and. You know, since the time I was 15, the Beastie Boys have been around. Yeah, right. I think I, I think and, and, and I believe my sister would have to correct me. Feel free to do that in the comments um, that uh, I believe that because uh, because and, and my sister before me had listened to a lot of the hair metal. And by proxy, I think, as we know from this story uh, from episode one, that uh, I kind of followed a hair metal thing. But swear to God, the Beastie Boys were the first band that actually scared my mom. <laughs> nice. I this mean, is the Beastie Boys were the only band my my mom would tolerate listening to Ozzy, and she mm -hmm. she hated the Beastie Boys. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the thing uh, talking to the video aspect of of uh, what you're saying, Rob, is that what I encourage anyone to do if they have if they have not already if they are fans of Beastie Boys music is go check out the Criterion Collection DVD. Um, mm -hmm. That they did of their video anthology, which is two discs. I mean, it's all That's their the Criterion, yeah, cri is... yeah, Criterion yeah. collection, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's two discs, and there's all kinds of awesome <laughs> features on there, like multi-angle features and and different you know versions. And basically, they'll let you on certain videos remake, but use a remix and basically mix your own video. And it's just like it, it really speaks to the whole idea of you know, like you said, let's. Let's go beyond this. Just uh, let's let's stand around and lip sync and and you know just do that and try to sell some music. It was well. Let's let's try to do something at least moderately interesting. And and hence out of that comes uh, folks like Spike Jones, right? Yeah. yeah. So you had Spike Jones, and I think did Michelle Gondry do some stuff for them as well? Yeah, Michelle Gondry yeah. did some stuff for them too. Yeah. So I mean, so so there's there's another part of your legacy there is you know and music videos spawn film directors. Yeah. And in addition, Yacht directed several videos for the Beasties. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, including, uh, he did, now one of the ones he did, uh, which was the, the concert film. Uh, mm -hmm. I, awesome, I fucking shot that. They basically just put it out there. Okay, here, here's the deal. Bring your camera. You can bring your cameras to uh, the Madison Square Garden show. Film it. Give us the footage. We will edit it into a film. Yeah. Which is what they did. And it's actually a pretty cool film. And before Radiohead, they were one of the Z bands on Capitol. Um, outside of Radiohead, the Beatles and Frank Sinatra, they could probably do whatever the hell they wanted. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is, yeah, they they were, and they always kind of operated like the punk band they started out being. Yeah, you know, uh, they they sort of kind of went their own way, which is which is actually pretty cool. Yeah, um, particularly and, particularly with Grand Royale Records. Yeah, uh, which uh, which had uh, which a nice had run. which had a nice run, which had Luscious uh, Jackson, Luscious Jackson, Sean I, Lennon, and Ben I Lee. The, I think the Butthole Surfers, right? No, Butthole. Butthole surfers at one point, but they left. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the drive-in. Yeah. They had uh, the last two at the drive-in records. So uh, among among a bunch of people that were on that label. You know, it's just. You know, I was going to write something for for the site. I'm just like, I can't. <laughs> I mean, it's just they're so epic that you can't really. And it's not that they're musically the most gifted thing in the world. They just play all their cards right. I mean, it's. You know, a lot of bands would have cashed in on Fight for Your Right to Party, turned it into a one-trick pony, and that's it, you know. And it's really, really interesting. And if you've never listened to Paul's Boutique, it's it's really fascinating. It's a great little record. And Hello Nasty, I think, is also um, pretty amazing. And, you know, it's interesting because every soundtrack you see that the Beastie Boys have a song in, that's the enjoyable part of the movie. Well, what I find interesting is that I mean, we all, I think we're all in agreement about the awesomeness of Paul's boutique, but, yeah. but that, that's what followed License to Ill. I mean, it's just, yeah. that's, that's your sophomore album. Yeah. What and the that's, fuck, folks? Which at the time, people were like, the critics were like, this is great, but the kids were like, what the fuck is this? I mean, which, which is also interesting because the Beasties had fought to get off Def Jam to do this record. Yeah. Because Def Jam didn't like it. Yeah. Def Jam didn't I mean, like it. I mean, yeah, and again, for, there was a while there where the kids were like, we don't get it, you know, but then they just stayed to their plan, you know, which I thought was really cool. And then to follow that up, and and really to follow up Paul's Boutique with Check Your Head. Yeah. To to literally, okay, now we're going to dump all that and we're going to play our own instruments on the next record is is interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting place to go, especially after Paul's Boutique. Yeah. And that record was everywhere. That was like the summer record that year. I mean, that thing was everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. I mean, it was interesting, too, because that was when that record came out. was right when the sort of rave techno thing hit the U.S. Yeah. And you'd go to a club and you'd hear all these, like, techno, electronic-y sort of similar-sounding records and the Beastie Boys. Yeah. You know, they managed to sort of pass through all that you know um it's kind of interesting check your head is i think probably one of the most their most overlooked record um just because well, of what, well the instrument what's the, after it well the instrument yeah the instrument thing kind of got perfected with uh with ill communication yeah really well and, and i'd like to point out that um there are lots of rap albums and all kinds of albums really that do the kind of spoken interlude weird supposedly funny interludes mm-hmm. between songs yeah that are just something that keeps you from listening to the next song whereas check your head is one of the few albums where i actually think blue nun is funny you know yeah i mean they, they actually don't get old after the first listen so that's yeah. that's huge and i don't yeah. know if i don't know if the beastie boys uh started that um but they, they are one of the few bands that actually do it properly yeah. One of one of the Beasties' first early singles was Cookie Puss, which is amazingly hilarious. Uh, have you heard this, Rob? Yes. 
it's basically what it is. It's set to a looped hip hop, hip hop beat, maybe a couple of guitars. It's basically, uh, who, do you know who makes the phone call? I think, is it, is it Yach? Is it Yach yeah, making the phone so. call? I think so. Basically, they call it Carvels, uh, at different times. Basically, it's them, it's a recording of Adam Yacht calling a Carvels ice cream at different times of the day and asking where Cookie Puss is <laughs> for three minutes. And it's really, really funny. Yeah. And I think you can find it on, uh, what is it? The, uh, the old bullshit collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's on that. I'm that was like, sure the... there'll be a new best of collection coming very yeah. soon. But uh, but that is, that is the very first thing they one of the very first things the Beasties put out, which is while they were still kind of a punk band and still kind of and going into going into the rap. Yeah, it, I mean, I I try to explain to people that the Beastie Boys sort of made it made it so that people could say, you know, it's okay to like rap. It'll be okay. That's kind of what they did. Well, it's it's kind of telling that, uh, and and may, part of this may be an influence of Rick Rubin, um, uh, which is interesting because the, the if I read the bio correctly, uh, Rick Rubin was their first uh, DJ. Yeah. At, at their early at their early shows when they started to uh, incorporate rap stuff in, uh, Rick Rubin was like their early. They hired Rick Rubin to be their DJ. And then later on, when he was starting the label, he uh, he he got them uh, he got them a gig. Which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's kind of telling that, uh, you know, for the first single, for Fight for Your Right to Party, you've got the guitars from Slayer in it. Yeah. And, and that kind of made people in certain circles set up and pay attention. Well, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I can tell you from four years of Catholic school that Paul Revere was not well received in certain academic institutions. Oh, no. No, I imagine not. It was the first album I ever had taken away from me by someone in authority, so it instantly made it awesome. <laughs> nice. Let me get this straight. You're not taking the NWA tape, but you're taking this? Okay, you don't, totally don't know what you're doing. You know, um, and the VC Boys, I think the best gift you can say about them is that they were one of the bands that threw away the bullshit of color and race and social status and income and just put everyone in the same fucking room together. And I think that that's like the most fittingly perfect tribute to a band you can make. It just didn't matter when you, uh, when you listen to a Beastie Boy record, it completely transcends everything. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I think of very few bands that do that. So. All right. So, uh, moving on, uh, we also lost another member of the Bee Gees, uh, Robin Gibb. Uh, passed. Um, he was probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was, I believe, was he the original lead singer of the group? Yeah, I believe so. Him and Maurice were, were doing the vocalists. Yeah. Because um, Barry, Barry didn't take lead until much, much later. Yeah. If anyone's curious, he was the blonde one. Yeah. So. But, uh, but it's interesting, and, and, and the Bee Gees is always every time you want to bring up the Bee Gees, they're a minefield of the band. And <laughs> kids, ask your parents. Um, but they start out they start out as, as little kids as kind of this skiffle group when they were kids in Australia, so they were kind of a regional hit. And then they come back as kind of this as kind of these kind of Brit Maudi balladeers. For a while, is, is that? Am I getting? Am I kind of getting that explanation correct? Yeah. With the yeah, with the spicks and specks and stuff. Um, 
and the the mining disaster song and, and they're these really good pop songs and then uh they they the beaches are very well known for these con- the continuing kind of 360 180 sort of musical transitions that they made and i think mm-hmm. In a weird way, it kind of opened up the doors for some of these bands later, like, you know, U2 to have a different a sound differently every other record and, and, and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but the other the, the downside of it is and it's not really a downside because the, and the strange thing is it's all sort of brilliant pop records. But then you have to get to the landmine that is the disco stuff. And that's always going to be I, I guess that's always going to be the curse of that band, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing that, the thing about the Bee Gees is that that that, that I that, that is weirdly when you say when you, when you say these things and you think about them and then you start to laugh, they were actually the reason why they ended up in Australia is because they were like constantly in trouble for like starting fights and bullying people. So their dad moved them to Australia. So you know, yeah. this image of like the Bee Gees jumping kids at a playground and beating them up is kind of a weird concept for when you think of how deep is your love, you know. Um, and they sort of they were brought over from Australia to the same guy who sort of introduced the Beatles to the rest of the world as well, the same management company that sort of said, "Hey, you, you're, you're going to be great." So they always were sort of in the shadow of the Beatles, which I think is a, an important musical thing when you see what they how they mangled Sergeant Pepper later. Those early years, they were so behind um, the Beatles and that movement that they so desperately, I think, wanted to be as big as the Beatles, that they would change. They sort of got this idea of changing your sound and what you do that the Beatles kind of took and sort of made it their own, but in far more drastic ways. And, um, you know, the thing, the, the, the Saturday Fever records, which are, which are the big, you know, disco records, they tend to, I don't try to think of them as disco records as much as just their songs of their period in that a lot of their records in the seventies sound like that, you know? Right. Um, and that just happened to be, you know, any band around, if you two was around at that point, they probably would have attempted to do something like that, you know? Um, so they very much capitalized on the sound of a particular moment made it their own, repackaged it, and put it out. They were very, very smart in that they took what was popular and wrapped it and did it. They they were not necessarily innovative in or different or fresh or, you know, certainly their their pop records in the 60s do not rival like the Kinks or the Yardbirds, for example. Yeah. But they're very much of that period. And then you get to the disco records – and you can argue that those records are above or beyond different things, but the problem is with the disco records, they've been played so much that people in my generation can't really look at them now and look at them until something like now when you've had 30 yeah. or 40 years hindsight. I can tell you that you listen to Tragedy and you listen to some of those songs yeah. from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and depending on your mood, at some point, you're like, you know, this is not that bad, you know? Because that's the thing. You can argue, you can argue, you know, First of all, they're all brilliant pop songs, but the the problem and what I mean when, when they're a landmine band is that, you know, you depending on what – yeah, exactly. You can't pigeonhole them, but at certain points, depending on what music you listen to and what era you grew up in, they were literally the enemy. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of I, – I guess my kind of point, of <laughs> point in is probably like 
uh, probably new wave, probably post punk, probably metal. And that was like they were like the Antichrist. They really yeah. were. Mm. Well, the only thing that I, uh, the only thing that really, because, because I mean, I, I, I was gonna defend a bit like Saturday Night Fever because the the songs on there are they're not bad songs. I mean, they are disco. They're not. But they're not. Brilliant. But, yeah. but but even but even at the time, the only thing that I really was like, what was their Sgt. Pepper movie? I mean, that, yeah. That granted, that's enough to make you know anyone think you're the Antichrist, but. Um, but even but here's the thing: even if you go there, yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Aerosmith that made their careers. Yes, but I'm talking about the Bee Gees. Yeah, the, the you know the Bee Gees versions of those songs are just like yeah, yeah. no, no. But and and, and we've talked about that before. But my point being is that I, I you know I I appreciate the whole thinking that they they were the enemy, but I actually never thought that i mean there were times yeah. when i uh, when i was in the you know in the mood less for the music than i was at you know at certain points like rob was saying but um but they've never been uh you know laughable to me because i it's I, sort of schmaltzy kind well, they, of yeah they yeah. can be schmaltzy i mean uh but 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 never but never just flat out bad so yeah well, no, I mean, and that's what I'm saying. That's that's kind of what I, I've come to the age where I can kind of accept. Okay, the Bee Gees did really good pop records, I mean, and I kind of have to kind of. It takes a lot for me to look past the disco thing, but I do, which is yeah. why, which is why I go back to saying, okay, the Bee Gees are a bit of a uh, minefield because you have all this. You have even even with even with the the, the sugary ballady stuff, they're still really brilliantly written songs. Yeah, well, I mean. And it's, and it's tricky for me having lived through the seventies, um, and growing up hearing them all the time. You know, I, I, I basically between my dad yeah. and his jazz records and my, and my two sisters and my brother playing that stuff. I mean, you got inundated with it. And I, for some weird reason, I still think this, the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever is actually, is actually pretty, it's an interesting jumping off point culturally for a lot of the music of today. But in many ways, it's brilliant and how they put it together because somebody knew that they needed, you know, a big heavyweight band to do it. And they picked the Bee Gees and they were smart enough to say, you know what, we're going to do this. And you almost have to relook at the disco period, not as like disco records, but it's like these are great soul records. Like a lot of those Diana Ross records that are disco records are actually really great soul records. But then you get, you know, you get, you get a lot of the novelty knockoff shit. But the stuff that's endured is the stuff that has a melody and a harmony and elements of, of either soul or rock and roll in them. Sort well, of, see, so and, and my argument about the, you know, even within the sort of, I guess, disco-y albums, if you, even if you look at the two albums that preceded, the two Bee Gees albums that preceded Fever, uh, which is what, Main Chorus, and I forget the name of the other one. Well, there was a but, live one. Yeah, there was a live one. But the records that kind of preceded that were they kind of made the jump from the 60s balladeer stuff to like more more funk and soul records um those are very interesting records um and 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 those are there's a really interesting records because uh because you kind of tell they took that change sort of it seems very effortless you know you you hear some albums (laughs) you hear some albums when groups sort of quote change their sound and you know especially in the initial tracks or even like half the album to get them there it sort of feels It feels like they're kind of fighting it a little bit, but especially with with, with the Bee Gees records, it just seemed like it seemed yeah. very it seemed like a very natural progression to go there. 
Well, they also had a meticulous production style as well. They're one of the first yeah. bands that really got you know using production in a studio. But the thing that's interesting about the Beatles and Robin Gibb was pretty much the face of them. Yeah. Um, and they put him out there to sort of be the face of the band. And it's kind of weird because the guy was like, you know, he's all chummy with Tony Blair. He's going, you know, on, on hunting holidays with, with royalty. And uh, he had a huge, huge, massive house, you know, and he kind of was like the first sort of front man in a band in the seventies that wasn't like, you know, a hard rock band that was obviously, you know, flamboyant and out there with everything he did. You know, he was you mean like, the anti-Rod Stewart? Kind of, yeah. I mean, you kind of had a lot of that stuff in rock and you had a lot of that stuff in metal, but you never had anybody in sort of what we would now would call dance music that way, you know? And he also was, I think, in many ways, the business end of the band um, that sort of made a lot of the calculated decisions to let's do this, let's do that kind of thing. And you have to look at, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the Bee Gees is you have such a contrast in the vocals. And he's more the falsetto uh, of them, I think, than Maurice is. Yeah. And um, the dynamic, they knew they knew how to work their vocals well. And the biggest thing I can say about Robin Gibb is, if you took that voice out of the Bee Gees, they no longer, despite any of the minefield of music that you, that you described, they're no longer the Bee Gees. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's an interesting thing to say about him uh, as a musician. I mean, he didn't do half. I mean, a lot of the, you know, you would probably ask him. You know, you're in a band. He's like, yeah, I was a singer of the band, and that's pretty much it. He didn't want to be anything more than a vocalist of the Bee Gees and a, and a performer. He didn't, you know, he enjoyed pretty much a celebrity. He had a very sort of, I would say. Um, but it is um, important to note that all three of them did contribute to the writing of their stuff, though. Yeah, each one did different roles in the band. Yes. Yeah. But he was very much the the face of them, you know. Yes. Um, and. He very much had sort of the, the most optimal lifestyle either. He had a huge mansion. He collected Rolls Royces, you know, whereas Maurice, for example, is like, I'll let him go do whatever he wants. I'm playing paintball, you know. So you have this sort of different dichotomy of the band where he was very much the flamboyant out there uh, singer at a time in the mid-70s when you needed that, you know. It, it was very much a... I, I guess what made the Bee Gees so popular is that besides the catchy hooks and the melodies, it's that they were so horribly, painfully decadent. You know, you think about the Bee Gees records, it's 1977, there's a gas crisis, there's no money, everything's, you know, inflated beyond relief, there's still the residual of, of the American racial tension civil rights movement, and you have the Bee Gees coming in with this, like, flamboyant, all-white all white band of British guys coming in singing like American soul pop records and wearing obviously extremely rich, well taken care of clothes. And it played well and they totally made money. I mean, it played against have, everything at the time. Do you think that may have ultimately played a part in the Packlash even more than the disco stuff from um, certain, from certain areas? You mean? No, not really, because I think almost everyone who lives in the seventies, I mean, a lot of people I know uh, of that age that were far more, musically of age than I was at that time, sort of review the 70s as like, you know, if they didn't like the metal stuff, they like Abba and the Bee Gees, and it's pretty much like Abba and the Bee Gees were the party music of normal people in that decade. Yeah. Um, you know, thankfully I was 10 when 
Now, I was nine when Saturday Night Fever broke, so yeah. I didn't have that affect my teenage youth. But I can, you know, um, it, it is very, very strange how the, the lasting power of that band. It is just because you listen to. I mean, they're almost like four different bands. They are really four different bands. It, it, yeah. sort of, it feels like it. You yeah. put version numbers. It's sort of like even when we talk about the Beastie Boys, the Beastie Boys had maybe three distinct eras. You know, they started out as a punk band, 1.0, and then they were the rap band, 2.0. And then what they evolved into, which would be, you know, 3.0, the Bee Gees, you're right, went through about four different versions. Now, the other interesting thing is once disco died, they still made records, but they were no – They did. They weren't weren't huge. They pretty much And they all had huge careers as producers. Yeah, they pretty much knew once the disco train left that – they had they needed to change gears and be behind the so they produced records they wrote other songs and they owned all their own publishing which if you think about all the residuals from Saturday Night Fever from 1980 until now they owned the publishing rights which is huge which is huge for a band you know um, and what is it like how deep is your love have been recorded in 500 different versions or something it's yeah like, it's, oh, it's wow. insane. Yeah, it's um, like that and yesterday are the most covered things ever, yeah. which is staggering if you think about it. And you know, the the thing that makes the the Robin Gibb death so sad is that you know we had a podcast where we're like, well, I guess he's going to go, and he came out of the coma, and we're like, oh, okay, well, we don't have to talk about this, and then he died. You know, the fact that he, he that whole thing with him being in a coma and just fighting and fighting and fighting and then he's back and he's coherent for a couple of weeks and then boom he's gone is pretty interesting and it's also sort of shows a whole dimension to you know their his character you're like this guy was in the Bee Gees why is he this much of a fight you wouldn't expect that you know when you hear yeah. those disco records you don't think this is a guy that's gonna like put up a fight and, and be ruthless in business and you know but he got pretty much lambasted in the last 10 years for being so chummy with Tony Blair. They always showed him like walking around um, these different estates with like Tony Blair and he collected like houses. He had a house in Miami. I think he had an estate in England and he had another uh, like place in New York and LA, you know, very much the lifestyles of the rich and famous poster boy for a while, I think. Um, and the Beachy boys, or the Beastie Beachy boys, uh, the B, the, Kid Brothers were one of the few people I think to come out of the the disco era that made money and kept it. Yeah, um, which I think is also kind of interesting. So, Wedge, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, I mean I, I I think that that basically covers it. I I just uh, uh, I I I was I was ready to defend them, which is odd because <laughs> I mean after what they did to Sergeant Pepper, that I would still, but that just shows I, know. I think that I'm a fair-minded but caffeinated well, individual. Well, Sergeant Pepper, I think, was their very desperate attempt to regain glory that went horribly wrong. Yeah, as as, as we've discussed, uh, you know, while drinking heavily, but yes. So, going by the theory that if if the Bee Gees were a minefield, maybe not so much our, our, our next... Uh, our next person we need to talk about, uh, <laughs> Miss Donna Summer. Um, if anyone is is more closely associated to disco than the Bee Gees, it has to be Donna Summer. Agree? 
Yes. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah. So 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 how how in in respects to first of all the voice. That is an amazing voice she had. Um even even past the disco stuff and 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 for me it took me a really long time to reconcile the disco stuff. On the radio uh, it was probably on the radio and this other really obscure song of hers called The Waterward are probably yeah. the two best examples of where you can sort of hear her voice. Yeah. Just as a voice. I was gonna go there. I was gonna go to on the radio. Um yeah. but uh just an amazing range. And um when and her, her records where she was paired with uh Giorgio Moroder as a producer. Um, you know, if you like and here's here's the crux of it though, and I always think about the disco argument like this. If you like industrial, if you like your electronic music, if you like your dubstep, you gotta go back to disco. You really do. And that's kind of the roadmap. Parts of it, yes. Yeah, and that's kind of the roadmap, because especially with the Marauder stuff, Marauder picked up stuff from Kraftwerk uh, and sort of carried it forward and made it mainstream. You know, sort of got it to people like Bowie hearing it and go, you know, the future of music is I feel love, basically. Um, but it, but it's very interesting, and it's and it's particularly – her career is very interesting, particularly in the fact that I think – she probably wore the disco badge a lot more than the the Bee Gees did because she was probably out in front more, I think. Um, and she she had a bit more of a success in the eighties, um, obviously because uh, obviously because she was still selling records in the eighties. Um, even though she she kind of had issues with her image stuff later, uh, her religious beliefs kind of didn't <laughs> quite coalesce with her, about killing with her fan early base. image yeah with, with with her early image and she sort of <laughs> she sort of reversed um but i do uh, want to get back to that though no go ahead no I, at some point we can get back to that go ahead no we no i was gonna say you can take that well what's interesting is <clears throat> she builds a career sort of living off this sort of um i guess you could you could you could easily call it the um the sloth of the disco era kind of everyone was very, it was very much a me centered sort of scene with drugs and, and, and it was very much a hedonistic sort of culture of the disco era. And so she gets religion and says a lot of things. Now what what's interesting is I, I talked to a, a couple of different friends of mine about her cultural relevance across different boards. And when she found God, she, in the course of talking about that, managed to open her mouth and greatly alienate a large portion of her gay fan base um, because she was one of the first gay icons in terms of being a, a pop singer, right? And it really damaged her. And then after a while, she just sort of said, okay, I'm sorry. And then like that, everything was forgiven. And it's really sort of fascinating. I know it's a... Um, it's kind of an interesting facet of her career because she's one of the few musicians I think that learned if you open your mouth, don't open it too much. Keep quiet because it will affect your sales. She's one of the few people that admitted, you know, when I opened my mouth and I said those things, my record sales were like next to nothing. And part of the reason she had to do on the radio and some of the other soundtrack stuff she did in the 80s is because she had alienated her a large base of her audience, you know, Um but not just that base, but like in particular, a lot of the producers and like the other contemporary artists that she had, 
you know, she picked fights with Diana Ross and Rick James and some other people that probably were not the smartest things in the world to do. So I think it's kind of interesting that she sort of bit the hand that feed her, learned her lesson, learned her lesson and got on with it. And I thought that part was kind of an interesting aspect of her career that I sort of at least wanted to touch upon. So. Which, which was there something you wanted to uh, throw in? <clears throat> I just want to say that um, just like with the Bee Gees, we have Sergeant Pepper that I have to contend with. Um, the MacArthur Park disco version is a big thing to have to deal with, but yeah. hopefully she learned her lesson with that too. Well, here's here's the question: Who is more evil, her for recording it, or MacArthur, or the MacArthur Park people for signing away the rights for the money when they knew it was going to be terrible? I don't know. I, I know. I, I don't even like. Well, I'm with you on that. I'm totally yeah. with you. On oh that. God. The, the other thing that you have to understand about the disco era, it was the first throw it on the wall, let's see if it sticks kind of era on music, and that everything, <clears throat> the disco era gave us everything from that horrible image in my head now of the MacArthur Park disco record to the Star Wars disco record to the Ethel Merman disco record to the Liberace disco record. To the Mickey Mouse to, disco record. Yes, I mean to everything. I mean, it's sort of like, it was like, well, it, it was probably the really first time in music that they completely cashed in on a phase to such horrible, horrible excess. I mean, they'd done it throughout rock, but this was absolutely freaking shameless, you know? And I don't know if you can necessarily hold it against, you can hold it against her for making a crap record, but you can't really, I don't know if you can hold it against her for doing something that everyone else around her was doing at the same oh, time. No, no, no. And, and trust me, it, I mean, it, it was like number one for three weeks in a row. So, yeah. I mean, because it, people have no taste. No, no, I understand that. But I mean, I, I you know, people need people need houses. You know, you can always do the Michael Caine excuse. I, I'm just saying that that yeah. that, that just like um, <laughs> you know, every rose does have its thorns. So even like yes. with the Bee Gees, even with Donna Summer, there's something yeah. where you have to just go. And we love you despite this. She abused the hell out of her body. I think when when she was um, at the height of her career, I think her her, her I think she's very she was very very very. Um, up front in later years about her, her drug and alcohol use, you know, and that time. And I think in many ways, um, I think she almost got taken advantage of, I think. Um, cause a lot of the producers and a lot of the people that made those records at those times very much just used all of their artists and threw them away. Um, and I think she's one of the few artists that came out of the disco era that sort of stood on her own two feet and just sort of said, you know, I'm not going to, let people walk on me and she kind of got an attitude for being yeah i'm kind of bitchy and yeah i'm difficult to work with but i think she also saw so many people especially on casablanca uh, uh, a label that was kind of notorious for this of just using up people as a machine and throwing them away she was very much aware of that that's what it was and she she well one she made that label which which at the time, well, Casablanca was, was huge. I believe, I believe Casablanca was uh, Donna Summer and Kiss, basically. Yeah. Well, um, what was interesting is that she was one of the people that would that told them, you know, I don't understand what these guys are doing, but the makeup and the weird shit, they're going to love that. She was one of the people that, like, made them decide to sign Kiss. Because she got she, – whereas she didn't get the music, she got the showmanship. And I think the thing that, that marks her apart from many other people of, of that era is that she had a flair – for showmanship and presentation combined with an absolutely incredible voice. I mean, you look at someone like Thelma Houston, who had an incredible voice, 
but no sort of if you watch any of the videos or anything, no nothing flamboyant or great. Where if you watch the YouTube videos of Donna Summer, they're these sort of spectacle sort of things, you know, which is part of the reason why I think she has such an iconic sort of uh, image in, in a lot of different circles from people of that era is because of the presentation. Well, um, she had a she had a feel for that because she was doing musicals in Germany. Yeah, she was she, doing think, like musical theater in Germany before she got found. And I think that really put her over because I mean, yeah. a lot of people could transition over to disco, but she sort of got that. Okay, uh, there's a theater. I mean, the reason why disco when it worked well, it was because it was very theatrical and very colorful. And she's sort of like, okay, bright costumes and the presentation. You know, she totally got it. Um, and she also, I think at the time, for a female African-American pop star, made a lot of uh, statements in terms of like, I'm not going to get pushed around. I'm doing things my way. And, you know, she really, and also in terms of female vocalists, she's one of those people that sort of gets overlooked as a pioneer for getting uh, female artists paid the same pay rate on residuals as yeah. male artists. And she didn't, I mean, say what you want about, about her records. She didn't take no shit. I mean, she, you know, she did interviews where she said, you know, everything that, you know, Aretha and Billie Holiday and the people ahead of me fought for, um, you know, I'm going to take, and it's my rules now, baby. I mean, that's kind of her mentality with it. And, she kind of knew, I think, when she was making the disco records that she had to have a uh, have a plan for when that ran out, which is why I think she had, to a certain extent, a limited degree of success after that. Um, and she was also smart enough to sort of keep an eye on what other people were doing musically, which yeah. is why I Feel Love is so um, perfectly timed. That record was timed absolutely at the right time. You know? Uh, and the production, I mean, she also understood, you know, as did Robin Gibb, the merits of production. So in many ways, she was a very calculated, smart, and clever businesswoman, along with being a talented voice. And I think that's um, one of the statements we probably should make, and also opinionated. And I think that at that particular era, America wasn't ready for an opinionated superstar, you know, kind of like in the same way that, but not as far opinionated as Madonna went, but in in the same sort of manner, I think she was very much um, sort of a, a, an alternative voice of the 70s. Well, yeah, but I don't, and again, as far as dance music goes, and I think as far as as far as female imagery goes, I don't, it's kind of the roadmap. You don't get to Madonna without Donna, Donna Summer. Yeah. Attitude-wise and, and image-wise, I don't think you get there without her. Yeah. Well, you don't get to a blondie. That's you know. Yeah, because because that, that would be the the two big ones. It would be Donna because Madonna's <laughs> really Donna Summer and uh, and uh, Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry. Yeah. Although I have to tell you, the full eight to twelve minute version of "I Feel Love," where Maroder just plays and plays and plays, is fucking incredible. I mean, you can oh, hear yeah. that now in a big room, and it sounds just as great as it did then. Um there's something about some of her records that are just like on the radio, it's just her voice in it. Like at the very beginning the way it starts and stuff, it's just, it's actually really beautiful. I mean, yeah. And then, um, even she works hard for the money, you know, which was her big comeback hit. Yeah. You know, it's sort of at the time, 
she works hard for the money, spoke very strongly about the, the female pop culture of the time. Yep. Um, so I always thought that was kind of interesting too. But again, it's someone I think who's greatly sort of overlooked in terms of talent and contribution. So and I don't think she's in the Hall of Fame. Is she? She's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is she? I think did she did she make it in? I know she was on the list at one point. Stand by. I mean, keep talking, but I mean, yeah, like, I mean, yes. I was I, when I was when I, I was uh-huh. when I was in New York and I was at the limelight, I actually met Giorgio Moroder and uh, the poor man. I mean, he's got this fucking 20 year old kid just bugging the shit out of him. And, you know, I'm like, so, you know, uh, the half of the questions were about the chase and the other half of it was it's like, so I feel love. What's going on? It's like she wouldn't let me stop playing. She's just like, play it out. Just, you know, this record would be great if it was longer. And they sort of, that is one of those interesting collaborations. You know, yeah. I don't think her career would have been what it was if she would not worked with Marauder. Um, because I think he sort of got, you know, and again, one of the first singers to really use the European market to her advantage as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, okay, I got you. Know. you. I got you an answer. She was a nominee for 2012, but did not yeah. make the short list. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. So. But everyone, you know, everyone from Madonna, Whitney Houston, Amy Whitehouse, Duffy, none of these people would be around if there wasn't a Donna Summer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So. Okay. So moving on to uh, our big topic for this episode, uh, you may have noticed this uh, at the end of last month, uh, but uh, Amanda Palmer uh, picked up a million dollars. I'll explain. Uh, this is part <laughs> of... This is part of the uh, what turns out to be uh, helping her promotion for a new album she has coming out in September, which is the first first major release she had since uh, Who Killed Amanda Palmer, uh, which was her last major label release. Um, she actually put her, uh, her the case for funding the promotion for the record and the tour up on Kickstarter uh, by selling uh, special packages, special limited edition packages via Kickstarter. <laughs> Um, and she ended up making uh, $1,192,000 uh, by this one-month campaign. And this all occurred in the same month. So this, this, uh, this was in the month of May. So the question is twofold. Is Kickstarter and its ilk kind of another big step in the evolution of the music industry? Or is this just really good for Amanda Palmer? Um, well, I'll jump in. I, I think it's, uh, both. And I think it's really good for Amanda Palmer in that this, well, it, well let's, let's just, let, let me just expand upon what Kickstarter does for, for those dear listeners who might not be aware. It, I thought you might. Uh, yeah. Cause, cause, uh, cause I don't know, somebody I know might be looking at doing one of these soon. <coughs> so anyway, I, uh, but no. A lot of people get confused in that they look at this and they go, oh, well, you're donating to Amanda Palmer. But what Kickstarter allows you to do is you go and you say, look, I want to do X, whatever X is. And with Kickstarter, it must be a something. You have to come out of the other end with a – There has to be a product. There has to be a product, okay? But the part of the genius of it is that you're you're not donating. I mean, yes, there's like – you oh give us a dollar and thank you. You your your premium response is that we thank you. Um, it's not donating or buying shares. You're yeah, not yeah. like investing. Yeah. Um but what 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 eventually happens is you get if you start getting 
higher levels of, of contributing to the project, you get something in return. In the case of, uh, like, for example, there, the, uh, Amanda's previous Kickstarter that she was involved with, where <clears throat> she said, look, uh, her, her now husband, Neil Gaiman, and she wanted to do these live shows, record them, and put them out as a CD. So, you know, I was a contributor to that, and I forget the level that I went in at, but I basically got a physical copy of the when, – when they had them done, they sent us a digital copy, and then later we got the physical copy, which was quite nice, by the way. Um, but basically, it's a pre-ordering system is what it is. So yeah. that So that basically the, the million dollars and so forth – I mean, yes, she had some crazy things on there like, I'm going to do – you know, I will come and do a house party, you know, at, at – you know, I will play at your house party for $5,000 or something like that. Um, so, so she's got all kinds of insane levels on there, but you which are... we should know, which we should know 34 people took her up on. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, uh, but part of it is that you are getting something in return for it. Um, so, you know, uh, she, she's, she's basically pre-selling her album. Um, so, so that's, that's basically what Kickstarter is. It's a way of going to the public and saying, dear public, I want to do X. If you would like to see X exist, or you would actually like a copy of X, then please do this. So that's what it means for Amanda Palmer. And, and the good thing for Amanda Palmer is that her tour, um, her album, which is already recorded, uh, and the two singles off of sound really good. Um, the album, by the way, comes out in September in case you're curious. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's done, but it does fund her concert tour, her, uh, the art book that she wants to do that accompanies it, um, and the actual production of the album itself in physical form and elsewhere. And if I understand it correctly, that also included the videos, correct? I think so. Yes. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, so the good thing for Amanda Palmer is that she has got her project funded and she can now turn around and do it. And the good thing for artists in general is that even at the end of the day, when this is done, she now has a product that, yes, she's pre-sold it to all these Kickstarter people, but she can now turn around and sell it to other people. So it just it keeps going. Um, so what this means, my, I'll take a first crack at this. What what this means to the music industry, and it, they're already doing this, is that you can, uh, as as Amanda Palmer pointed out many many times in, in the communications she's done, basically take the place of what the label would pay for uh and and then you'd be you know in debt for all of that to the label um by doing it with the fans themselves uh and getting the fans to as you said crowdfund it um so what i think this does is twofold it basically shows that you can we're seeing increasingly that media can you if you've got an idea for a piece of media that people actually want that's the key but people have to want it enough to want to pay for it to exist because unfortunately as i've pointed out before we don't exist in the star trek universe and things still cost money um if you if you've got an idea for that you can make it happen if you're smart about it and you get the word out to uh you know a few thousand of your closest friends uh so i mean and, and as part of amanda points out you have to have a following first you can't just start your band tomorrow and go okay kickstarter time that's probably not going to work um, but I think people can bypass the existing label structure w when it comes to getting something that they want to get out, out. Now, that being said, I think, and I've seen this elsewhere, and I think I've actually said this before, is that 
where yet whereas you can't you know some people are social media maniacs like Amanda Palmer who love going on Twitter and just talking to fans and answering every single email and posting or stuff. doing five hour live video yeah, shows. Yeah, live video shows and and sending pictures of them nude in in email newsletters. Um which don't do that part. I'm not no, I'm not going I'm to. I'm just saying. No, I trust me, don't worry about it. <laughs> I, 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 no one wants my moobs, okay? Um internet you're welcome by yeah, the way. There you go. Uh, I've talked him down from that. Yeah, yeah, fine, take credit. I'm fine. Anyway, but um, you completely derailed me by talking about moves. What the hell was I saying? Oh, no, I think the other thing is that what you can have is an evolution. If they're smart, companies, and they probably already exist, to be quite honest, but companies that basically say, look, you know making music. We know social media. We know Kickstarter and Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and all this other stuff. If you're not into that, we're into it. Why don't you go do what you do, and we'll do what we do, and let's join forces. Isn't that kind of the idea with the other service I was going to talk about of Pledge Music? Isn't that kind of the oh, – that's kind of what I got from it, reading the description of what Pledge Music is. Yeah, I, I, I'm t well, take us through what Pledge Music is because I'm less familiar with that than I am with Kickstarter. Okay, Pledge so Music? Pledge Music is another similar site to this, and probably right now the biggest artist that is currently using that service uh, is probably Ben Folds 5. Uh, which is offering their new album as a project. Um, but what Pledge Music is, um, is kind of like Kickstarter, where you can have premiums and you can have that sort of thing. Um, but uh, they uh, also act as kind of the A&R and marketing manager of the project. So that means based on how what you're funded at, you know, you can pick your studio and the producer and the artwork. And then the website does kind of the groundwork for you as far as the promotion goes. Well, there you go, but but I think I think that um, I do think that this is where things are going to go. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of bands try it and not make it because because part of it is you have to set a reasonable goal, you have to have a following that you can draw upon, and you have to have something that people actually want. And uh, we should mention, as of this recording. For example, yeah. um, there are 851 music projects on Kickstarter right now. Yes, and I think there was a report somewhere. I can I can look it up when I finally stop talking um, about how what percentage of them actually make it, um, and for various reasons. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Kickstarter, if you're interested in Kickstarter or this at all, is that on their blog they have a great deal of metrics that they use to track what works, what doesn't. Um, you know, and, and stuff like that. And and part of the interesting thing that they've done recently is they've said with like the Amanda Palmer thing, the concern has been, well, you know, those 851 music projects that you're talking about, they're all competing for the same music money when really they're not. Because what they yeah. found was is that I think the game is called Double Find. Like the most successful Kickstarter they've ever had was a video game. I yep. think it did $3 million. And, uh, well, actually, I've got, according to Wikipedia, which, as we know, is... It's always right. Always right. Uh, so so the top projects, according to uh, Wikipedia from Kickstarter, um, is Pebble uh, e-paper watch uh, for iPhone and Android uh, that uh, was funded. And its total, it received 10 million, a little over 10 million oh, right, funding. Right. Exactly. Okay. The Double Fine Adventure was next. Uh, okay. That got about four million. Okay. 
Uh, Wasteland 2, which is also a video game, uh, got about uh, $3 million, a little short of $3 million. Uh, Shadow the a funded Shadowrun sequel, sequel uh, was uh, a little short of two. Um, and, and I'm not going to list all of these, but you get the idea. Most of these are vi- some. Some of these are design projects. I think there are like four design projects on here. Uh, there are quite a few video game projects on the list. Uh, Amanda Palmer is the only music uh, funded. Is the only music project on this list, but this is the top funded. Right. Um, but it's the only music project among a great deal of design, uh, four design projects and, uh, four video games, a comic and, and a board game from Steve Jackson games. Right. Well, and, and the, the reason I was going to double fine was what they did was they found that they had, well, X percentage, a really high percentage of the double fine contributors were new people to Kickstarter, but yeah. then they were able to track what percentage of them then went on to contribute to other gaming projects. Yep. So I think, and I'll, now I'll shut up and let you guys jump in, but I think this is where it's going simply because it will be successful for the right people and people will see that. So shutting up. Okay. Rob, Quaver, what do you make of all this? I think he's right that it's the way of the future, but again, uh, it's tricky because in many ways, the labels do what they do because they know what they're doing. And that's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, first of all, how many times can Amanda Palmer ask her audience to give her money and pay for her things? That well, is. Well, Rob, let, let me just stop. A lot. Well, hang on. Rob, <laughs> let me, let me stop you there because if yeah. she was asking for donations. Yeah. Where they were giving and not getting anything, I would agree with you. Yeah. But, but basically, here's what I like to get the, uh, to get the well, hang on. I will. I will tell you exactly what it was. But because uh, I was going somewhere with this. But go ahead. No, no, no. I was, oh, well, well, keep going. I, I didn't. I didn't mean. Well, to you're looking you. up. I'll keep going. My, my point is that I would think between all of the online stuff she's already done, like the ukulele records, and the Australian stuff that she's done, that that is she's got enough stuff in an archive that she could very easily release a record and take it to a label and put it out, or do it as her own label, right? My my question is, when does this cross a line between her putting out her own music and having complete control over the mechanisms and all of that? And when does that line cross over into, I don't want to have to pay to put out my own record, or I can just get other people to pay for my art? I don't see that as being as what's happening. Because, I know. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to play a devil's advocate. Oh, no, no. On that well, here, well, here's what I would say. Okay, here's what I did for the the latest the the Amanda Palmer release is that I I pledged 25 bucks. Okay, there you go. And I got the 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 limited edition CD, which is a backer only version. It's got a hardbound CD case. And having seen the Neil and Amanda case, it's gonna be good because the, I was actually yeah. very pleasantly surprised at how awesome the packaging was. Um, and yeah. I'm not a packaging guy, you know, mostly for, yeah. I, I don't give a shit. I'm like, give me the CD, let me rip it, fuck off. But and this was actually nice. 24 page art booklet, uh, and a, and a digital download of the album when it becomes available. That's for 25 bucks. Okay. So considering that, oh, and by the way, you could get just the digital download if you didn't want the physical for five bucks. Yeah. Which is it, which well, is a fucking well, great get- deal. Well, you could get it for one dollar. You could get just the album for one dollar. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're you're absolutely right. She's giving and it to everyone. She, and and yeah. then she added uh, at the five dollar level. She added like a digital version. I, I'm not the yeah. digital version of the art book, but a digital 
basically what amounts to a CD book. Yeah, lyrics, band yeah. photos, uh, drafts of stuff. So, so anyway, my my point being is that that being that I can see where Rob, if it was like, if you had to pay like, if you felt like you were paying more to get something that you could get, you know, less elsewhere. I could see that like 50 bucks for a CD. That's a little crazy. But when you yeah. consider that 4,744 people backed her at the dollar level just to get the album or just to be able to say they were in on it. No. And I get that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so I, I think, I think it's less, I, I don't want to pay for my own thing. Then this is how I can basically get the capital to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I am giving people something back for it. I mean, that, that is the, the most important part. So, and, if and I were... get that, and I get that in her instance. Right. But my, my point being, at what point, and I probably should have been a little clearer, at what point does this become artist A or artist B who's not Amanda Palmer, who doesn't have, I mean, to be fair, Amanda Palmer has a certain advantage going into the game because one, she has, uh, artistic, visual, artistic, musical, and design elements at her disposal that a lot of other musicians do not have at video do not have at her dis at their disposal right to be fair she's got enough people she knows that she can make this happen but at what point does band a or band b take this model and cross that line between i'm just shilling so you don't have to pay. My, my my point is that this is one of those things that very easily could be you just getting uh, somebody being lazy um and just saying, you know, I've made a record. Sure, I could pay for it, but I'm going to put it up on Kickstarter and have other people pay for it, and I'm going to put it out. And that way, if I lose money, it's not my money I lose. Well, okay. To make an immediate comparison, let's let's throw this let's throw this hypothetical out. You've heard the you've heard the story about Morrissey waiting around for a label to release another album, right? You've no, heard I this hadn't. Story. But go ahead. Okay. Okay. So basically, uh, at the end of the year, and Morrissey has repeated this story at least twice that he has the follow up to his last record already recorded. He is just waiting to make a deal with the label to do it, and it does. He's he's he was saying that no label wants to make a deal for it because he's such a pain in the ass. But yeah. But but, but this is this is what I'm getting to. This is my point. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of Morrissey's career has been. Itching about record labels. Yes. Okay. So if I'm not mistaken, if anyone was going to self-release a record and go the Kickstarter route, you think it would be Morrissey? Well, because he's he's got enough of a fall. Because if we well, follow the yes no, because thing, Morrissey does not want to have to admit that he needs other people to help him do that. But but you see what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Theoretically, well, this model would be perfect for him. Yeah. Because what yeah. we're talking about is this is for established people who don't who, ne who don't necessarily want to work with the label. And, and that is that and that is great. I'm fine with that. My concern is that at some point, like all cool new things that happen, someone's going to come along and fuck it up for the rest of us. And that's my concern. So I, I don't uh, know how you do that, though, Rob. I mean, you haven't convinced. Well, me I'm, how well, I'm, not, I'm just waiting to see how it's going to happen. That's my point. Is I think it's sort point? of like. I, I think it's sort of like it gets voted down, or or the unpopular one won't get won't get funded. And that's what you know. That well, my question is like, if I want to put out a record, right, and I yeah. do a Kickstarter campaign and I get six thousand dollars, and yeah. I let's say I don't put out the record, do I have to give that money back? No, you don't. Yeah. But okay. But one. But, yeah. Okay. Well, well, one. But but part of it is that I mean, 
you're certainly not going to pull that shit again. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I'm just no, saying. Actually, actually, if, if I'm looking at this correctly, there is a mechanism inside Kickstarter that basically gives you a time limit of when you have to do provide, stuff. Okay. do Good. stuff. Um, because then, they have actually hit people. They have actually yeah. hit people up for fraud suits after. That was my question. Or pulling that, up know, funding options. So, so Kickstarter is pretty straight about that. Yeah, and that was that was my concern. Not having looked at it, um, you know, obviously I've, I'm more inclined to buy something online, you know, in terms of a, from a musician, from someone I've heard of who I know has had a label issue, um, and I'm more I'm more inclined to bypass a label. You know, anytime anyone can bypass a label and do their own thing, it's the same way with me as self publishing. If you can, you know bypass that that whole wheel of it great i am for you but i just want to make sure that it's set up in a way where i as a consumer i'm not going to one get taken advantage of or fucked with i don't necessarily think amanda palmer is that kind of a person that would do that because she's pretty much from her career after the dresden dolls on has been sort of trying to claw and scratch and fight to get her music out there and get her stuff out into the world but Again, it's the music industry we're dealing with, and these people are fucking lepers. So uh, is this – I guess this leads into my question that I was going to hopefully get to. Is this a foolproof thing that they can't touch and fuck up, or is this something that somehow, some way, someone can get a hold of and fuck it up? That's kind of where I was going with this because I'm not – I mean I love the idea of it on paper. I'm just wondering how long is it going to be? before something happens. I mean, well, nothing I, I, is completely foolproof, but this right. almost sounds foolproof. And that's I, kind of I, where I, I was going with this. I, I think that remains to be seen. Okay. Because um because particularly and we if if you want to go back to this top projects funded thing, I yeah. mean, none of these are actually products yet. None of these are actually out. None okay. of them. Um we know that the Amanda Palmer record has a release date of September. We know the double fine thing is going to be out in about a year and a half. We know the Shadowrun thing is probably going to be about two years to develop. We know the Wasteland. The Shadowrun, I'm sorry. Okay. The Shadowrun the Shadow Run sequel is going to be about two years out for development. We know the video games are going to take about two years to develop. Yeah. Uh, to go even further, uh, who was it? Uh, Stevenson has the thing about uh, the, uh, the, the sword combat video game. Um, and they, they, they really do say, look, we're just trying to get this engine to go so we can make a simple game. So we can yeah. make a simple prototype. So you're funding a prototype. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether any of this stuff, it, it, once this stuff gets released. Yeah. Um, and, and the question I have, particularly about Kickstarter and particularly about established artists, maybe not even in the case of Amanda Palmer, because she, her audience, we don't know, you know, we don't really know the, the, the size of her audience yet. We're still kind of gauging that, uh, particularly with stuff like this. But, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to tell. Is it possible that maybe through Kickstarter and, it, and and as Wood says, this is sort of a pre-sale system. Um, so if this is a pre-sale system, aren't you afraid you're sort of tapping out your audience at some point by the pre-sale? Well, I think not necessarily because I think one, from what it sounds like, I would feel like I am really actually in the trenches with my favorite artist, helping them make their art. Which for me, if that's how this, if this works, how I'm perceiving it, is a really cool thing. Like if Widge is making an album and I give him twenty bucks and his album makes it, I don't necessarily need to see my name, you know, in the album liner notes or nothing. 
I just know that, you know, in my small way, I helped him do his art. And I think that's a powerful thing, right? And I also think the idea of empowerment away from a label and a corporation or a publisher or whatever is an incredibly awesome thing. And we're moving more away from that. But the point being, every time we've had a technology that moves away from a record label, they have found a way to either crush it or take advantage of it. And now I think now I think what you will see, and I think what you will see, and more what's more likely is more things like what Live Nation does with the 360 deals they have with like Madonna and Jay Z and a couple of other acts, which is okay. In addition to whatever label you happen to be on, um, okay, so. So we'll, we'll do a 360 deal, whereas, okay, so you can start your own label. We'll let you start your own label. Um, we just get a share of everything, merchandise, tour, everything. And that's probably for people on the top end. Probably for people in the middle, you're going to get something similar to the current label system, but kind of more socially aware mm-hmm. um, that is going to be more akin to maybe a talent show competition where, yeah. you know, the worst, you know, the bands that aren't popular <laughs> enough are going to get voted off to the Island of Misfit Toys, yeah. basically. And I, and I could see, I could very well see that happening. I, I think, I, I think with something like that, but I think even in that scenario, the bands that get voted off to the Island of Misfit Toys is still a big enough following to support a Kickstarter thing. Yeah. And I like, I mean, I like the, the, also the idea that it takes away the fact that like a label or an artist has to rely on a label. Like they are not married to that label. For example, okay, go doesn't necessarily, if they were on Kickstarter, um, have to be obligated to a label to put out the record they want to make. I, I really like that, that idea. Um, and even if like, I, I know that if I'm paying for an album and it's already coming out in two or three months, I probably would still be inclined to do it if I'm getting something back because I would feel like, you know, again, there is something to be said, as I said, about that you are helping make the art. But I also would feel like kind of cool to be like, well, I, you know, I heard of this before everybody else. That is also another cool aspect of it. It's kind uh, of like fun, it's kind of like helping to fund the indie film before it uh, before it yeah, exactly. before it opens. But, and again, this is, I mean, this is such a broad use. Outside, I mean, I know it's a music podcast, but this totally works for publishing, yeah, film, and so many other things. I'm just wondering that it almost to me sounds too good to be true. Where like a person just on his own can make whatever the hell he wants to do and use his own street smarts, book smarts, and marketing smarts to make whatever they can with their product and it, to and, me it almost sounds too good to be true and that's why i'm a little kind of caught off guard by it because although i've heard about it and you know people have had success stories with it i'm still waiting sort of for you know why isn't this broader and why why aren't more people doing it you know um because if you if you read a lot of the industry stuff where they talk about kickstarter like record yeah. label industry stuff they make it sound like it's the like you go to the North Pole, you know, look at such a wasteland, you know. And I don't necessarily think that the quality that you put in something like this is demonstrative of, of what the service is. You know, yeah, there's going to be tons of really bad bands that may use it to put out their CD. But you know what? I'm with them because they at least have the balls to say, fuck you to a label. You know, well, I think I think the other thing is, really, don't you think the labels have a vested interest to put it out there about, you know, put a, put a negative spin on this? They do, and that's why I was that's why I was asking the questions I was trying to do because I'm trying to find, yeah, sort of that line. In, at what point does it become an artist sort of 
paying for their own thing with other people paying for it, what time, what, what point does it become an artist paying, you know, getting somebody to help them pay for something and giving something back? And at what point does it become, you know, a record label or a large corporation sort of not liking having competition in well, a free I market? Of, I kind of see it as two things. And, and, and particularly, and I hope I'm making it, sense of my arguments because I'm yeah, trying yeah. not to ramble. Okay. No, I understand. I'm trying uh, to play a certain devil's advocate with it here because it's a whole new, it's a whole new ballgame oh, yeah. with whole new rules. Yeah. And I don't think the, uh, I think it's so new that nobody really knows what the rules and the boundaries are yet, which I think is also kind of interesting. Here's, here's what I look at it in the case of Amanda Palmer, because number one, very early on in this project, her goal was a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So if nothing else, if she had hit the a hundred thousand goal, or even if she had, even if she had gone just a little past the hundred thousand dollar goal, that would have been a big deal. And that, I feel like is more of the story here. It's okay. a brilliant. It, it, yeah, she made a million dollars. That that's 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 just shits and giggles. That's great. And that probably scares an awful lot of people. Yeah, most notably probably Amanda Palmer. But um, <laughs> but but think about it for a minute. Even if she if she had made it successfully funded, just if she had just gotten like a dollar over a hundred thousand, that would have been a big story. Uh, and that would have been a brilliant part of a the beginnings of a marketing campaign for the build up to the record in September. <laughs> yeah, which I think is is a brilliant idea. But she made a million dollars off this. Um, mm -hmm. That makes it a really big deal. Well, and, exactly. and let's let, let's just let's just be clear because this is going to fund the project. She didn't yeah. actually make a million dollars. Yeah, the money's good. The money gets gets spent on things involved in the project. Right. Well, yeah, and that's yeah. and that's and that's an important distinction to make, but it's still But the point is it's her money to decide where it goes to, yes. not a guy in an office. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And because she has access <laughs> to that to those people that you were talking about, Rob, the various uh different media folks, she knows exactly how to do this and and is is doing it. Um, so I, I think the, the whole thing of, you know, how, how does this get screwed up? I think, I think particular people can screw themselves up. Um, <clears throat> you know, what was it? I was looking at the, the top music funded ones of which the Neil Gaiman, Amanda Palmer one that I mentioned before is like number five, uh, the, the <clears throat> new Amanda Palmer one being number one. And your point about, uh, toughly stuff not being out yet is, uh, is accurate. Um, there's a lot of stuff that there's a lot of these things where, you know, like you're funding the studio time to make the album, you know, stuff yeah. like that. So, but I mean, that's really going to be the test of time when some of this stuff starts right. coming out. Well, but, but the other thing I was going to say was there was one that was funded from some band in Canada and they apparently had a delivery date of March. And, um, they, I was looking at their latest updates and the stuff is coming out, but there's been delays and stuff like that. And people aren't happy. So, I mean, Rob, I think that's how you. Yeah, I think you screw it up on a smaller scale in okay. that in that if this band if this band were to try another one, um, that they probably would get less you know response because people go oh well you know the last one, they they fucked up. So let me just guys let me, let me just to our dear listeners out there into the world let me give you a little tip from a guy who spent a lot of time as a project manager. It's called undercommit and overdeliver, which means you know if if these guys had said. Uh, you know, if, if they committed to having this thing thing out in March, they're delivering it in June. They look like assholes. However, if you commit to something being out in June and then you deliver it in March, you look like heroes. There's a great distinction there. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that I think that I think is the most important thing. And that's what everyone's learning because this is so new is that 
you have people who are saying, holy shit, um, you know, we got a successful Kickstarter, but we're actually in the red on it because we forgot to allow for X, whether it's shipping of physical premiums or, you know, we forgot to put some cushion in there or, oh, we forgot to put taxes in there because you got to pay taxes on the money, right? All that was my next question. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, or, you do have to pay taxes. Or uh, you forget about when you include in your goal because, uh, if I understand Kickstarter correctly, 5% goes to Kickstarter off the top. Yes. 5% goes to what, Amazon, Amazon Payments. Payments. Yes. And that's not even counting fees coming from if you use other payment sources to Amazon, including PayPal. Uh, you can't, I believe it's just, you have to go through Amazon. I don't, you have to go through Amazon. Okay. There's, there's a reason why, and I don't remember what it is, but they have a, they have an FAQ on the Kickstarter site that says why they don't use PayPal. Okay. Um, But yeah, it has to be Amazon and it has to be like a U.S. based Amazon thing. Um, so there's international people have to basically go through Amazon U.S. to do it at the moment. Um, but I mean, I, I think you're going to see screw ups on a smaller scale rather than a everyone just gets completely, you know, discombobulated with with what's <laughs> going on. Yeah, because I mean, people are just figuring out. And, and here's part of the problem, Robin, and part of what I think speaks to what you're saying is that you've got Amanda who's used to DIY everything. And then you got bands who wouldn't know a project plan from a hole in the ground and don't know how to do this. You know, so, uh, you know, does this spell the death of the labels? No, because there's going to be plenty of musicians that still just want to do their thing. But I think if this pledge music thing is what you're talking about, Tuffley, then I think that sounds really enticing, especially if they have people who can say, listen, we can help you do this. We, yeah, you're very good at strumming a guitar. You're not good at, you know, figuring out accounting and, and trying to find, you know, and trying to shoot your own video. You know, now, the other thing, the other thing that I find interesting about pledge music, um, and there are a couple of other, uh, sites that are sort of like Pledge Music, uh, you have the option of if you're an established act, you can do a premium on a product for charity, um, which, which is also nice. Um, uh, Benfold 5 also did something along that line with their Pledge Music thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Killing Joke did a live record that was along those lines. Um, and I guess that they still own the copyrights and everything for that. And they still own the copyrights to it. Okay. It's still theirs. Um, I think in the case of the Killing Joke live record, they made that exclusive to the Pledge Music Project because they had already recorded it and a portion of it went to charity. But um, if I understand that correctly, but um, but so so there you can use these not in addition to fund a project. You can also use like alternative method to like you know do something for a charity or have a bonus or have a you know promotional bonus for a record you're going to come out with but you're going to do you can you can make it like a promotional tool uh instead of just funding the project which is also an interesting way to do it right and yeah. and rob while there's certain sites like indiegogo that um are like kickstarter and will let you keep the money even if you don't hit your goal if you have a kickstarter and you've got like ten thousand dollars to record your album and you make you get to ninety five hundred and don't hit ten thousand nobody pays so, so if you if you have an unsuccessful drive, then yeah. then the the people who backed you are out. Okay, nothing. that yeah, it all flies in your face. So it could be adverse too, as much as it's helpful. Yeah. it could also really be hurtful. Well, it's it's like most tools. If you learn how to use it properly, a chainsaw. You know, Kickstarter yeah. is a chainsaw. There you go. If you know how to use it properly and you wear the right gear, you'll be fine, and you'll cut through the wood that you need to. If not, you're going to take your leg off. So. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's a metaphor for you. Amanda, if you're listening, we are not suggesting chainsaws on the tour, okay? that's We're not suggesting that at all. Especially with as much nudity as normally is involved with her stuff. No, 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 no. No, no, no. No, no. no. Not at I'm all. I'm the only person that's not seen her naked. Okay, never mind. Yes, <laughs> yeah, Rob, let me just put you this Are way. you on the internet? Yeah, Rob. Yes, me... but I have better things to do. Yes, no, I, no, no, you have to understand. Because sometimes I... I think she oversaturates. No, I well, I mean, but you've you've managed to avoid it. So to or me, too much information, I think, is well, what I was looking for. Yeah, basically, Rob, what, what's funny is when somebody tweets to Neil Gaiman and says, "Neil, your wife is sending naked pictures to me over the internet." <laughs> that's, that's quite funny. Yeah. So we're about to wrap this up for our this our thirtieth episode, but you're probably sitting at home thinking to yourself, "Listen, I've heard you guys talking about a lot of interesting music and." I'm wondering, is there some way I can do this and, you know, can make sure that this show goes past 31 episodes and gets further away from Eastwick? Um, I think we can help you out with that, uh, Widge. Yeah, I, I, toughly, you're absolutely right. Uh, no, there's a very simple way that you can uh, that you can enjoy. Uh, grab music that you like uh, and help out the soundboard and all of NeedCoffee.com at the same time. And that is to remember this particular URL. It's NeedCoffee.com slash Amazon. If you go to that uh, and uh, you, you'll wind up at the front page of Amazon like nothing happened. But what you've really done is uh, is you're, you're going that through us and uh, anything that you purchase, whether it's a, a tasty Pink Floyd immersion box set or a 99 cent MP3, we get kickbacks for all of that. And we get kickbacks and the kickbacks increase on the quantity that people buy through us. So every 99 cent MP3 counts. Uh, so don't think, oh, you're just going to get three cents. Out. No, trust me, it all helps. Um, so, yes, that, that is the way that anything <laughs> that you've heard us talk about or anything else that you're interested in buying, if you bookmark that, uh, it helps us out a great deal. And as Rob says, helps us keep the lights on. And does that work if you bookmark it? Because I've gotten that question. Uh, yes, it does. Just bookmark needcoffee.com slash Amazon, that URL, uh, rather than the URL you wind up with, because um, it's a shortener type of thing. Uh, and uh, And it will help you, yes. Okay, brilliant. Uh, so that is going to do it for this, our 30th episode of The Soundboard. Um, yay, 30 episodes. After party. That, that, means, that, means after, that means starting with the next episode, you younger folks can't trust us. <laughs> they were trusting Accor- us before. According to The Who, you can't trust us over 30. Oh. So, but again, they're a bunch of old farts now anyway, so what are they now? Anyway, that's going to do it for this edition. I don't trust them. Ah, see, there you go. That'll do it for this edition of The Soundboard. See you next time.